good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, I owe my life to that deaf baby. We're talking, as my mother says, it's Sunday dinner. Come and get it. And we're talking, A-L-A-B-A-M-A. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and my roommate did Adam West. She said he was so horny. <laughs> I was actually hoping you would pick that one, because it it just kills me every time, because he's in the fucking movie. It's, well, I, I mean, it's, he signed off on that shit. He had to have signed mm-hmm. off on that shit. But, um, oh, yeah. Joe, I, yeah. actually, listeners, a preamble to this, because we will be quoting this movie a lot, and I already love, Joe, that your Minnesota accent is very much still a Canadian with like mm-hmm. a hint of Minnesota accent in whatever you just said. <laughs> yeah, I realized as I was doing it, I'm like, oh, it just sounds like I'm saying A as a classic Canadian. Oh, yeah. I'm saying A-L-A. No, I can't do it. Fuck it. <laughs> I'm going to be trying to do it. <laughs> we are talking Drop Dead Gorgeous, everyone. Uh, so for a happy early 4th of July and a bit of an unorthodox pick for us again right joe yeah i mean i don't think anybody's gonna quibble with the fact that this is very obviously a queer camp slash cult classic but the reason we're doing it is yes independence day we're starting off a particular theme month but also there's a lot of murder in this movie yes i think i'm trying to think of like what we've done in the past that i would compare this to the most and honestly i mean not in the cult status but in terms of content Reefer Madness, the movie musical, where I said, oh, there's one song where people turn into zombies, therefore it counts. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I would probably go with another cult classic, because I saw them compared in a couple of pieces, uh, Darren Stein's Jawbreaker. Oh, yes, which also came out the exact same year as this, just five months earlier, and also Mm -hmm. flopped. So go back and listen to our episode on Jawbreaker. 1999. Still the best year for movies, I'm telling you. I've got a time capsule for the uh, what was playing the opening weekend of this movie. But uh, anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm. so we are obviously super fans of this movie, but I think we might need one more just to give this movie its 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 credit. It's my daughter, Rebecca Ann Lehman! Oh my God. <laughs> but let's bring in our guest who's waiting in the wings, everyone. Uh, she is the streaming editor at IGN, on top of being a member of both the Television Critics Association and Critics' Choice. Please welcome Amelia Emberwing. Hi, guys. Hello, and welcome to the show, your premiere appearance. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've been talking about this forever, I feel like. Oh, really, really forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, we needed to wait for the perfect film, Amelia. It's true. And while I'm sad it's not horror, I'm thrilled it's dropped and gorgeous. So, like... Really torn. Well, so, okay, because I want to ask this, because, yeah, you selected this movie. You wanted to come on to this episode. Why is that? Uh, Because when I looked at your spreadsheet, it was the one that excited me the most. (laughs) (laughs) That's very fair. Very fair. (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, this... I don't know. I mean, this is a cult film, you know. It's it, it's really discovered an audience over the past uh, 23 years since its release. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Did you see this in theaters, Amelia? 
No, I was 10. <laughs> okay, you say that. My sister was nine. and we, so, okay, This came out the same weekend that um, Jan de Bont's Haunting remake came out. And so, oh, God. Yeah. Okay, let me rephrase that. I was 10 in a Baptist town. Oh, this yeah. Absolutely oh. did not come within 100 miles of where I lived. <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, ding. There it is. There it is. Yeah. It's so... Cause, like, so my... my yeah, it's me and my dad, my mom and my sister. And so we, frequently when a horror movie came out that I was allowed to go see, meaning it was PG-13, uh, we would split up. So my dad and I would go see the horror movie. My mom and sister would go see the girly movie, quote unquote. Rude. And so when my dad and I went to go see The Haunting, my mom <laughs> was like, hey, nine-year-old daughter, um, here's a movie about a beauty pageant. Let's go mm-hmm. see that. <laughs> yep. My mom was not prepared for this movie. <laughs> No, I don't think anybody's mom would be prepared for this movie. My mom made a lot of weird choices like that because she also took us to go see Pleasantville when I would have been nine and my sister was seven. And that scene when Joan Allen masturbates in the bathtub. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking Pleasantville (laughs) is a very complicated film for a young child to understand and grasp the nuance of too. But yeah, Joan Allen masturbating. Sure. But back to Drop Dead Gorgeous. Uh, Wait, so Amelia, how did you discover this film? Oh, God. I don't know. I feel like I must have like I feel like I must have watched it as a sleepover as a teen. Like it must have come into my life somehow, but I truly don't actually remember the first time I watched Drop Dead. I do. I do. My stepmom had a VHS of it. Yes. <laughs> and I was home alone and I watched it and then I watched it over and over and over again. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Joe, what about you? So interestingly enough, I did see this on opening weekend. I've talked about how my sister kind of guided me and helping me to discover different kinds of movies so obviously we watched a lot of horror together but we also watched a lot of ya films so this was kind of like the primo classic period for ya movies so like 1999 she's all that we i think had just Mm. had 10 things i hate about you like shakespeare ya films were very very popular all this to say we saw a new (laughs) ya movie we decided to go and see it And this is actually one of my favorite movie going experiences because you're going to tell us, Trace, during the production that this film was not well marketed. And that was true even in Canada. So there was about five other people in the theater with my sister and I, and three of them walked out. (laughs) Yeah, so offended, so incensed at the content. This movie's not funny. Someone, uh, I believe, shouted as they walked out. It was like, okay, sir, thank you. We're going to watch uh, the rest of it. You know, all right, so I, I guess I guess maybe in case we have any people who are new to this film and you have not watched this yet, mm-hmm. minor content warning? I mean, it's it's an <laughs> offensive movie, but it's not like, it's, it's all verbal. None of it's like things you're seeing, I feel like. But nevertheless, um, I, my husband and I did show this to um, a 23-year-old last year, and he was not amused by this movie. So um, yeah. d- pick your battles. It's very much a product of its time, though. Like, you can't judge oh, past yeah. art on current standards. Like, this movie was fine when it came out, but it is aggressively not so now. Well, uh, I-, I agree, kind of, because I'm kind of... When we're talking about the inappropriateness and the bad taste of this film, which is something we will be talking about over the next couple weeks as we, uh, you know, enter our month of camp next month in July, but because it's parodying all these things, I almost... I think to myself every day, mm-hmm. right? Not every day, but whenever I watch this, like, could this be made today? No. Oh, my God. No. Well, okay, but I, it is filled with un-PC things, but it's mm-hmm. making fun of them. It's not promoting them. It's not endorsing these things. So, I don't know. I mean, like, does that still make it not okay to make today? 
even without the parody, like, I think of all the gross teen boy movies that existed mm-hmm. in the 90s, and mm-hmm. I'm just oh, like, yeah. no, I'm sorry, Drop Dead Gorgeous is fine, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, this is the same year as American Pie, but yeah. guess what, that film didn't get criticized. I think it was like, oh, yeah, he fucks the pie, and it's, like, funny slash gross. This movie got torn to shreds because it was deemed, like... I mean, people either say it's not funny or that it's too offensive or people like kind of understand the joke and realize, oh, it's not really making fun of the people it's making fun of. It's making fun of like rich white people who are like hypocritically religious. But it's also making fun of like conservative ideals, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are the same thing. <laughs> Rich white people and conservatives. Venn diagram is a circle. There you go. Circle. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I, I, I mean, well, well, you're right. There are people that think this is not funny, but also with those critics, sometimes they're kind of like, well, I feel like they did think it was funny, but they were afraid to say they thought it was funny. Uh, uh this this <laughs> is like a weird period for not just film criticism, but also like this kind of movie has to me a bit of an adult sensibility. Like I watched it as a teen and I found the dumb jokes funny, but as I've watched it about a million more times, like Amelia, I've come to appreciate how clever the wordplay is mm-hmm. hidden amongst, you know, like the R slurs and so on. Also, critics of the 90s panned Hocus Pocus, so what could they possibly know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Well, and, and that is something we will talk about a lot, again, in, in this camera, because like, it's like these films that are not successful when they first come out, and then, you know, 20 years later, oh, look, they've got their audience. Like, oh, yay, they're big and famous now, or they're really successful uh, quote unquote, because they didn't make their money back. But well, you're talking about cult films, and we're going to compare the difference between camp and cult more next week. But the camp is more the bad taste, the trash aesthetics, the quote unquote lowbrow humor. Yes, whereas the cult here is just the enormous following this film has just has found over the past 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay, well, why don't we go into how this film came to be? And before I go into this, I have to credit Lewis Peitzman, uh, who, what, at the time of writing this article, which is titled Jesus Loves Winners, How Drop Dead Gorgeous Found Cult Success as a Flop, uh, from 2014, uh, he was the an editor for BuzzFeed when he wrote this. And honestly is the only real it's it's not called an oral history but it's as close as you can get to one for this movie and if mm-hmm. anything you find about drop dead gorgeous references this article so this is like the bible of how did this get made because it sure as shit isn't on any home media release for this film no they really don't care about feeding the cult audience who wants more of this content like a bare bones blu-ray release in this day and age that that's more offensive than anything in this movie yeah that's just Warner Archive. Though. They always do that shit. But, but for the record, the Warner Archive Blu-ray is a real, has a really, really good video and audio quality. So it is the best this movie's ever looked and heard and sounded. There like you go. So, okay. Drop Dead Gorgeous began as a script. Obviously. By first-time screenwriter <laughs> Lona Williams. Great work. Great stuff you're doing here. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it was written by first-time screenwriter Lona Williams, who was raised in Rosemount, Minnesota. Obviously the inspiration for the films, Mount Rose, Minnesota. She participated in beauty pageants throughout her youth, um, but it was her placement as the runner-up in the year's America's Junior Miss that earned her a $10,000 scholarship that she then used to go to the University of Minnesota. Okay, she got the fuck out of her small town. <laughs> yeah, but then from there she's like, she's a screenwriting class, and she's like, cool, uh... I'm going to go to California. 
While she's there, she meets a man named Jerry Belson. And I was like, who the fuck is Jerry Belson? He is a screenwriter who wrote the 1975 film Smile, which is also a satire of beauty pageants. And I only know that because this was referenced in many reviews of Drop Dead Gorgeous, where they were comparing mm-hmm. Drop Dead Gorgeous unfavorably to Smile. But he helped her get a job as a writing assistant on The Simpsons. And while she was only a typist on that show, uh, she was working on the scripts. And that taught her how to write a script. So, after working as a writer and producer on The Drew Carey Show for three seasons, she wrote a screenplay titled Dairy Queens. And that title would later become Drop Dead Gorgeous after Dairy Queens sued to have the film's title changed. <laughs> wah, wah. Dairy Queens would have been a pretty funny title for this movie. Yes, and um, this is w- the first of three people who were noted to decline commenting on this article for BuzzFeed. Uh, Dairy Queen did not want to talk about this. Fair. Much of the script was inspired by Williams' small town life, but she also incorporated specific details about her pageant background into the script. So even that stepladder dance during uh, the, the, the conga thing, uh, that was also grounded in reality, where she had to do a dance with many ladders. She took plenty of creative liberties in adapting her memories into a script, uh, you know, finding humor in the proceedings, which was in sharp contrast to the girls around her, who were far more invested in the results of the pageant. So she takes that extreme competitiveness that uh, she witnessed firsthand and exaggerated it. I mean, maybe just a bit. I doubt this is really that exaggerated (laughs) for the movie. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of her quotes is like, yeah, most of it is pretty true, except for the fiery explosions. If only, right? Well, we don't want anyone to die in real life, but that hyper-competitiveness that might lead someone to plant some kind of bomb in a swan, yeah, I could see it. Yeah, sure. She had a dark sense of humor, so when writing the film, she didn't actually worry about who she might be offending, which I do find that in films like this, that's probably the best route to go. She focused on the kind of envelope-pushing material that she found the funniest, but it was that relentless darkness and bleak message that was part of what made the film such a tough sell. So... Enter the film's director, Michael Patrick Jan. He signed on. He was intrigued by how unconventional the script was. Uh, and of course, Jan is, at the time, he was a cast member and sometimes director of MTV's seminal sketch comedy series, The State, which of course included fame comedians like Kim Marino, Michael Showalter, Michael Ian Black. So he had an appreciation for absurdist comedy and less straightforward storytelling, but it was that less straightforward storytelling that appealed to him about this script because, in his words, it undid the idea of a story. It refused to be the story that it sets out to be, which we see that kind of, you know, in the where, where the climax, what should be the climactic pageant mm-hmm. is at the hour mark of this film. Yeah, I remember at the time people had a lot of difficulty with that. They felt like, oh, it's so anticlimactic. It doesn't know when to end. And you're like, uh, the more you get away from it, the more you realize, oh, that's by design, though. Well, so question for the two of you. Yeah, because I, I actually saw a lot of even positive reviews for this film that lamented the fact that it does lose steam in its final 20 minutes, really, like once we get to the shellfish incident. Mm-hmm. Do y'all agree with that? I do, but I think it's the point. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's necessarily makes for a good film decision, but I think it's the point of the narrative that it absolutely does lose steam. Like, this silly thing was your entire goal just to get you out of this town, and then, like, it was all... It's all for nothing. A farce. Yeah, yeah. it's all yeah. a farce. Like, you put all of your eggs in this one basket, like, your sole focus is to get out of this town, but things are bad everywhere, like, and I'm not condoning getting out of your tiny hick town. Uh, clearly, I am I am very pro getting out of your tiny hick town, mm-hmm. but... <laughs> Yes, it is slow. No, it doesn't necessarily work with the film, but also it's the intent, so I can't really be mad at it. I find that so interesting because I'm very similar in that I'm 
in today's world where we have access to filmmakers and creators and stuff, because yeah, for me, intent goes a long way to for me to excuse uh, uh, a lot of things, be, be it um, sometimes offensive things, sometimes irregular narratives, but. It wasn't always the case. I mean, in 1999, when this came out, you know, like we didn't know what the intent, well, was for this film (laughs) in the sense that the director wasn't telling us that and the writer wasn't telling us that. But I think the film is pretty clear in getting that point across. I think it's that as an audience member, we're very aware of things like ebbs and flows of energy. And there's a lot of energy when Kirsten Dunst is having to go up against Kirstie Alley, as well as Denise Richards. And when that sort of central antagonism has been diffused, it feels like, okay, so we're wrapping up, right? Nope. (laughs) I think it's just because that's what we've been trained to do in traditional narratives. But I've also come to appreciate more and more the comedy and the ridiculous satire in those last 20 minutes like i think some of the funniest parts of the movie are embedded in there and it's the sharpest critique that the film has i I think the biggest issue with it for me is just that we, we lose all those fun characters that we've come to love and know in that first hour oh sure and i think it's especially weird for viewers who watch it now because there are so many juggernauts in this film who weren't well known yet and now like watching it today you're like oh my god it's amy adams obviously she's Uh gonna be a huge role no (laughs) no no sir (laughs) yeah and there's so many character actors in here i mean it's it's such a weird thing to imagine a time when some of these people weren't famous but Mm -hmm. man even the small players in this film though give it their all like everyone is on point in this film So Jan did his best to shape the script in a way that he felt would make a better movie, but that also meant that sometimes he butted head with Lona Williams in the process. This was the first feature film for both of them, and they each had clear ideas about what the finished product should look like. The then 28-year-old Jan thought that the then 32-year-old Williams was too new to the industry and thus wasn't always plugged into everything going on with the production and understanding why certain things needed to happen. But he does admit that he could have been nicer to her. And Williams agrees with this because she is on record saying that she thought he was kind of an asshole. Her quotes about being mistreated in the production of this film are kind of amazing. Like, they're very good for her, especially when you read how she basically got, like, ganged up on with the film's producer as well. Yeah. So, I mean, like, she talks about how she has a memory of going out in the rain, crying, going to her rental car, having, like, a full body cry because she thought the film was getting away from her. And yeah, that that that, that producer, Gavin Pallone, who, by the way, mm-hmm. apparently his work on this film inspired him to, like, he connected with Amy Sherman Palladino and was like, oh, I really want, I think a good idea would be to do a show about a mother and daughter who were close in age. And that would eventually, obviously, become... Gilmore Girls. So mm-hmm. I shudder to think that had this film not existed, we might not have Gilmore Girls. <laughs> there you go. You Two just classics. made me retroactively not like Drop Dead Gorgeous. <laughs> you don't like Gilmore Girls? <sighs> ah! Rory, Rory Gilmore yeah. oh, is yes. the worst mm-hmm. thing to happen to any media ever. <laughs> No hyperbolics. <laughs> that character is so fascinating, though, because as a kid, as, as a teenager, I loved her. Yeah. And now that I'm an adult, I hate oh, her. I hate so her. So she was fine when she was, like, a little baby, and, like, you're a little baby being stupid and egotistical. Okay, fine. And then mm-hmm. she grew up, and she remained 
an yeah. egotistical little baby. Yeah, man, those, those Yale years were not good to her, or she her, was not good to them. Her and Hol- Holden Caulfield, man, just like, oh my gosh. perfect for each other. <laughs> perfect. So yeah, whenever there were conflicts on set, producer Gavin Pallone would always side with Jam. Uh, Williams felt like her voice wasn't being heard. Like, f- for example, she wrote the Candy Striper role for herself, but Pallone told her she was too old for the part and let her let her play the third pageant judge Jean Kangas who has no lines in the film and is thus considered a featured extra so I don't think she could even get a SAG card for this despite some contentions between the screenwriter the director the producer however the making of the film was largely a great experience for the actors unfortunately again Williams didn't agree because she wanted to do unknowns in the film to go for that mockumentary aspect and obviously that didn't happen but Aside from Kirsten Dunst, Denise Richards, and Brittany Murphy, all of the girls were hired locally in the Minneapolis area, and Amy Adams, who, along with Dairy Queen, declined to comment on this BuzzFeed story, (laughs) auditioned while on hiatus at the Minneapolis-based Chanhassen Dinner Theater, where she'd been performing for the past three years. So really, we wouldn't have Amy Adams for this movie as well. I forget it then. By the way, the ages of these girls, so I looked it up, because there was a whole thing that was like, oh, it's Denise Richards at 27 playing a 17-year-old girl. And it's like, yeah, that, that, mm-hmm. that show, yeah. whatever. So it's Hollywood. Adams was just a little bit younger. She was like 24 when they filmed this. Brittany Murphy was about 20. But Kirsten Dunst was 16 when this was filmed. Also, that's such a weird complaint for the 90s. Have I you know, watched, right? Have you watched anything from this era? Get out of here. I mean, I don't think Denise Richards is going to have a very good 1999. Because while she was riding that high from Wild Things the year before, she had this. People were complaining about that. And then uh, later this year, we would get Christmas Jones and yeah. The World Is Not Enough. She comes twice a year. I love that movie and I love her. I don't care what anyone says. She's not convincing as like a scientist, but she's fine as a Bond girl who can hold her own like physically. I think she's a nuclear physicist. She is. Yep. (laughs) Yep, she is. Um, but I, 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 in terms of weird casting bits, uh, Jan said that they wanted Sigourney Weaver to play Gladys, the Kirstie Alley role, uh, and they wanted Goldie Hawn to play Amber's mom, the Ellen Barkin role. And I do love both of those. I do too. But when I think of what Sigourney Weaver would have done with this role, I just think about her role in Heartbreakers. And to me, that that's what this would have been. Also, Kirstie Alley just got to play herself. So like, that was nice for her. Yeah. Oh, boy. Remember <sighs> when we thought she wasn't like who she actually is? Uh... Yeah. Well, okay, so that that's the weird thing too. So I mean, again, this this interview is from 2014, and by by that point, we had all known that Kirstie Alley was a crazy person. But did we? I feel like that came out with the Trump era, where she was like quiet forever, and then she was like, "Ah, fuck everybody." I, I, it definitely got worse. It compounded there, but I feel like she was. When she got her Twitter, she was still very vocal about Scientology. So I don't think people knew that she was a crazy conservative person, but they definitely knew she was a crazy Scientologist. Got it. Right. But funnily enough, so like Kirstie Allen and Ellen Barkin were perhaps the most removed from the from the group of younger actors. They both filmed for two weeks and never overlapped. But according to Lona Williams, Allie, who also declined to comment on this BuzzFeed article, <laughs> refused to wear many of the costumes chosen for her and didn't show up to fittings. Instead, she had her clothes sent to the Scientology celebrity center in hollywood and would try them on there jesus she also turned down working with the onset dialect coach which honestly that's fine because i think her accent's pretty good except when she's yelling after the swan blows up yeah for ali's first day on set this is what lona williams says she gets there and she announces that she just quit smoking and she's on a diet and she's got her period and she's not fucking kidding (laughs) 
loved it. <laughs> um, but she is the only one in the film that Lona Williams was unimpressed with because she didn't think she was funny. She was like, I can take someone who's like going to ride their high horse being the star saying, I will do this. I won't do this. It doesn't matter if you're great, but she was not. I actually disagree with that statement, though. I do like Christy Alley in this movie. Yeah, finding out that she sucked was was kind of Yeah, uh, it was bummer. disappointing. <laughs> yeah. I think she's good in the movie. I think there are people who are better than her, but yeah. she's definitely not bad. No. Yeah, she's not like it takes too good, but like she's still good. <gasps> oh my, okay, I mean, like, the, the, honestly... <laughs> And all these celebrities that have come out, you know, we, we realize that they're, they're, they're weird Trumpers. The, Kirstie Alley was kind of the hardest one for me because I grew up with It Takes Two. <laughs> yeah, that movie fucking rules. Like, it was <sighs> devastating. Like, you can't be this. You have to go fall in love and be cute, you shitbag. With Steve Gutenberg. He's right there. <sighs> <sighs> anyway. anyway. Okay, but um, yeah, so filming began on July 27th of 1998 and was shot throughout the Carver County area, mainly in Waconia, Minnesota, and wrapped production on September 11th of that same year. Begin problems. Oops. Aside from the few structural changes that Jan made, uh, he mostly stuck to William's script during filming. There were some unavoidable tweaks like the film's title. There were also a few subplots removed, uh, one of which involved Jan himself as a pervy janitor spying on the girls, which... I'm kind of like, well, why do you need that if you already have the John Doe judge character? But mm-hmm. whatever. And also, why does he get to be in the movie when he refused to let the screenwriter be in the movie? Oh, God. I mean, I get it. He's he's also an actor and she maybe was not. But still, it's just like it's a bit of a dick thing. Yeah, it's a weird bit role. It doesn't matter that she wasn't an actor. Exactly. But yeah, he, Jam was adamant that this film would be just under 90 minutes. So that's why he, he didn't care about cutting that subplot. But unfortunately, it does come in at 92 minutes when the credits roll. So <laughs> the larger battle, though, which was primarily waged during post-production, was over the film's tone, which was decidedly bleak. Hmm. While the pitch black comedy was a selling point for many of the actors and the crew who signed on, there were concerns that this darkness would alienate potential audiences. And strangely enough, New Line Cinema, the film's distributor, was largely comfortable with all of this before and during production. It was only when the tracking numbers came back that they started to get worried because few people had heard about the film and even fewer wanted to see it, which Again, that makes sense. Like, whoever, like, a group of people who've heard about a movie, not all of them are going to want to go see it, but whatever. Yeah, but also if you marketed it, more people would know about it. Yeah. Where is that? It's like, oh, we're in charge of doing that, but it seems like people aren't hearing about it. What should we do? If it's not the consequences of our own actions. Mm-hmm. What's this? So th- th- this movie wraps in September of 98. It doesn't come out till July of 99. So we have over a year that this movie's in post-production. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, almost a year that this movie's in post-production. There we go. So with no real time left to make the kind of drastic changes they were hoping for, New Line suggested stronger edits in an effort to make the movie look more like Clueless, which was a mainstream success four years earlier. Oh my god. Like, I get what they're saying because Clueless was obviously a huge financial and cultural hit but like this movie was never going to be clueless you can't make this movie clueless in the edit certainly not the fucking tone no (laughs) (laughs) so jam was frustrated by the sudden notes from the studio especially since there was so little he could do at that point um plus i mean again new line wanted to tone down exactly what it was that got him excited about this movie in the first place One alternate plan, they were like, oh maybe we could market this film as an indie film instead of a mainstream film which Okay. That's not how it works. That's not that's not how any of this works. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how do you market it as an indie film? Like what does that it's, mean? It's not a fucking indie movie. What do you mean you're gonna market it as an indie movie? That's not true. 
I could see it if they had a like had a subsidiary company and they could be like, we're not releasing this, we're going to give it to them kind of like what CBS used to do with like shows that they would ship off to the WB. So Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, this isn't a good fit for us. Uh, Give it to like the younger crappier sibling. But like, this is a studio fucking movie. You can't just be like, uh, it's independent. (laughs) Well, even if they tried to hoodwink us with that, here's the thing. They still couldn't do that because (laughs) New Line had already sold the international rights early on. And in an odd bit of studio interference, New Line made at least one request to cater to a foreign market, uh, insisting that filmmakers cast Japanese superstar Siko Matsuda, a pop singer and songwriter. Uh, She's the one who plays uh, Molly Howard, the country western girl, her sister who doesn't speak English. Never knew. Nevertheless, the desire to produce uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous as a mainstream film didn't do it any favors. Uh, In Jan's words, instead of succeeding at being offbeat, it failed at being mainstream. Yeah, basically. The lack of studio support for the film ended up hurting its box office numbers. So in July 1999, the studio had 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 a few recent successes, including uh, June's Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me. But Drop Dead Gorgeous was far from being a surefire hit, especially with the disappointing tracking numbers. And here's the thing. So... Since they had already sold the international rights, New Line had little interest in investing further, and they had two choices. They could spend the money on that domestic release and do the marketing for it. Or they could spend very little money and know that because of the film's small budget, which was $15 million, you settle for what you've already received from the international distribution deal and what you know you're going to get from your pay cable deals and your home video deals. New Line opted for the latter and essentially dumped the film with little fanfare into North American theaters on July 23rd, 1999 in just 1,200 theaters. And for comparison, the other two new uh, new releases that weekend were The Haunting and Inspector Gadget, both of which opened in 2,800 theaters. Yeah. So this is the summer of 1999 after all, and there was a crowded marketplace in the movie industry. Uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous opened outside of the top 10 in the number 11 spot with $3.9 million. And to paint you a picture of what was doing better than it that that weekend, the films that beat it out, so after The Haunting and Inspector Gadget, which were one and two, we have American Pie, Eyes Wide Shut, Big Daddy, Lake Placid, Wild Wild West, Tarzan, something called The Wood, which I've never heard of, and Star Wars Episode One. It would move to the number 15 spot in its second week with the release of films like Runaway Bride, Deep Blue Sea, and, speaking of indie films, the wide release of The Blair Witch Project, which expanded from 31 theaters to 1,100 theaters that weekend. Man, I can't believe Lake Placid and Deep Blue Sea came out so close to each other. What a good two weeks. Oh, oh, I mean... I remember seeing The Mummy. It was May of 99. And I had previews for both Lake Placid and Deep Blue Sea in front of my movie. And I was so happy about it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I feel like I was at the movie theater like every single weekend that summer. It was just hit after hit after hit. I saw Wild Wild West twice and got Deep Blue Sea in front of it both times. So again. Speaking of problematic movies. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, well, at least you got that trailer for Deep Blue Sea. Listen. Wild Wild West is a huge problem, and it's also fucking hilarious, okay? I am inclined to agree. Although, I was, so I was 10 when that came out, and it actually scared the crap out of me, because the, the, the severed heads always looked really scary to me. That is a man's <laughs> head. <laughs> there you go. I remembered a quote from a movie. There you <laughs> go. There we go. Not the movie we're talking about, but yeah. I did it. Unfortunately, Drop Dead Gorgeous would never 
make it into the top 10. And it would go on to gross $10.5 million against a production budget of $15 million. And weirdly enough, I couldn't find any international numbers for this. So whatever deal they made, I don't know if it made any money. I mean, presumably it had to be worth 15 or else they would have tried harder. Or maybe they just like paid them to put this woman in the movie and then they were like, okay, cool, but we're not going to release it. (laughs) Um, So That Drop Dead Gorgeous wasn't a monetary success, may have been disappointing, but nothing compared to the crushing blows the reviews dealt. And this movie was critically reviled, but we're looking at a 46% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.5 out of 10. I think this is because of more modern reviews creeping their way in. It's starting to come up because I think even when Heitzman wrote that article, I think in it, it says that it's sitting at like 44 or 45. So it's already creeped up a couple points. So weird. Well, um, yeah, so that's Rotten Tomatoes. We have a 28 on Metacritic. Um, Audiences pulled by CinemaScore gave it a C minus. (laughs) But thank the Lord, um, Letterboxd users have given it a score of 7.4 out of 10. So we're at least there. Letterbox saved us. <laughs> but here's just a few blurbs that I pulled from some of these reviews. <clears throat> Broad, obvious, and thuddingly unfunny. As mean-spirited as movies come. Incompetent and silly. So passe that the movie is virtually dead on arrival. And here we get some longer ones. Imagine Heathers or Election, but without their savvy satire or impeccable comic timing, and you basically get Drop Dead Gorgeous. It's like a cross between Heathers and Waiting for Guffman had those movies been made by morons, for morons, and the cinematic equivalent of cow tipping, only less graceful. Wow. If a movie billed as a comedy has not a single laugh, can it still be called a comedy? (laughs) That's subjective. (laughs) It makes the audience wince through what may be a record number of miserably unfunny jokes. And then, oh, and here's it. Some of the material is undeniably funny, but it sh- will surely be painful to some viewers and reinforce negative prejudice in others. And that's that was the most interesting one that I found in terms of negativity, because I was surprised to be seeing something like that in a review in 1999. Mm-hmm. But while the actors were largely able to brush off the negative reviews, Jan and Williams were not so lucky. After Drop Dead Gorgeous, Williams' next film was actually 2001 Sugar and Spice. Have you all seen this one? I have not. It's... Not good. Here's the thing, though. As she had written it, uh, it was called Sugar and Spice and Semi-Automatics. And unfortunately, because that film came out post-Columbine, they Mm -hmm. toned down everything. So it's... You can see how it's kind of a sibling to this film with, like, a darker humor, but it's much lighter. Much lighter. Yeah, like, it's been compromised. You can tell when you're watching it that it's like, oh, this isn't the way the film is supposed to play out. And this was, of course, her second film, and it was also not a good experience. She actually took her name off that film and changed uh, its credited to Mandy Nelson instead of her. So, like, this film isn't even on Lona Williams' IMDb profile. Mm -hmm. She hasn't really done much much work since, although she is one of three people who got a credit a story credit on Christopher Landon's 2015 film Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse which will eventually be an episode for us since queer horror right Jan never made another feature film, admitting to that the response to Drop Dead Gorgeous forced him to take a step back, so he went on to do a lot of Reno 911. He also directed episodes of shows like Community, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Happy Endings, and Suburgatory, but he is making a return to feature filmmaking with an upcoming Western horror film called Oregon Trail, which will be his first feature film in 23 years and second overall. Oh yeah, and that's uh, coming out later on this year, right? It's supposed to be this. I've never heard of it, but it says 2022. So unless it's doing festivals, it should come out. I don't know. Okay. Question. Just because this is a total sidebar. Did you folks play Oregon Trail as like kids (laughs) when you were growing up? 
Please say Oregon again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Oregon? Oregon? <laughs> Oregon. <laughs> Uh, I did not. I was this is beyond my time, but I have watched the American Dad episode that spoofs Oregon Trail many a time. That's the most trace answer to any question. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Roger Roger uh, is upset that he that the family might die one day, so he transports them into Oregon Trail. Nice. But as we all know, people die a lot in Oregon Trail, so they, the he time. watches them die over and over and over again <laughs> to try to beat the game. <laughs> Makes sense. Anyway, I'm just curious because I wasn't like it was one of those things where you know how the the recurring joke in movies is like if you get a sub, they're just going to play a movie. It's like if you had to go to computer class, if you weren't on a typing computer for me, you got to play the game. So it was like, oh, I really don't <laughs> want to get the typing computer because I want to oh play the game. God. The typing computer. God. Well, those mm-hmm. 90s computer classes in high school. You betcha. <laughs> so while Williams and Jam were putting the film behind them, the film's cult success was slowly growing. But the concept of success in relation to a cult film is a tricky one. So in the old days, meaning pre-VCRs, so like, you know, before the early 80s, Cult movies, uh, things like Pink Flamingos or Eraserhead, found their respective audiences on the midnight movie circuit, meaning people paid to see them, even though they weren't getting this widespread distribution. Yeah, we'll talk about that more in a couple weeks. Yes, we will. Um, the rise of Drop Dead Gorgeous' cult fame follows a more recent model, which is largely about self-discovery and sharing among friends after the movie has been released in theaters and usually performed poorly at the box office. So people discover uh, these things on cable or DVD and then watch them over and over, which is what happened to Amelia. Mm-hmm. And also me, because I did see this at home too. But unfortunately, it hasn't always been easy to find because until recently, it was only available in the original Snapcase Bare Bones DVD from 1999, which went out of print sometime in the mid-2000s and was going for $60 or more on online retailers. Still own it. Still own it. Fuck those snap cases. I hated them with a fiery burning passion. Wait, did you not upgrade to the Blu-ray yet? Uh, no, because I still have the original DVD, baby. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, let him live. You gotta buy it twice. It's the same damn thing. I know. It's So what I actually do is um, I when I buy a Blu-ray of a DVD that I already own, I pull the DVD out and I put it next to my TV, which is right by my front door. And whenever people come over, I just say, hey, look at that stack. You can take whatever you want. Wow. <laughs> I'm charitable. <laughs> <laughs> also, you could not stream this thing anywhere. It would not be available to stream until July of 2019. Uh, Warner Brothers, which had acquired New Line Cinema by this point, did release a Blu-ray in 2020 as part of their archives collection. But um, oh, hey, as of this recording, it is back to not being able to stream anywhere. Yeah. Can't even rent it in most places. It's a bit of a travesty. So the question becomes, though, can a film spoken about with such reverence 23 years after its release truly be considered a failure? And it sort of depends on what metrics you're using, right? Because part of a cult film is accepting that the movie may not be appreciated in the way it's originally intended. Although I would argue Mm -hmm. in this case... It is. The audience New Line was eager to cultivate was the audience that rejected the film, but I don't think that's the audience that the filmmakers were going after. Or maybe they didn't realize it at the time? Uh, Its later success comes from the kind of viewers big studios tend to ignore, again, not unlike Jawbreaker. Which, speaking of Jawbreaker, that film's writer-director Darren Stein says, I think all cult movies have something that's intrinsically transgressive about them. They go to a place that regular studio films don't go to, that's usually darker, edgier, and more forbidden. Uh, People collect these films that have had these dark elements that they enjoy. It's a truth-telling in a way that you don't see in a lot of films. And... 
Drag Queen and our former guest, Peaches Christ, chimed in also, comparing the thrill young people experience watching Drop Dead Gorgeous to what he and his friends felt watching John Waters films as a kid, saying, They thought it was for teenagers everywhere, and then they realized it was for urban queers. But also, outcasts as a whole, you know, the kind of people who would never dream of participating in a beauty pageant. And I, I think that's kind of the case here. I mean, like, I feel like most people know about this movie now, but it really is the queer community, or just kind of outcasts that have embraced this movie more so than any other group. I think, I I guess I'm kind of torn because mm-hmm. I enjoy the movie a huge deal, but I also think it's a failure. And I don't know right. if that's necessarily bad, I guess. Like, obviously they wanted to make their money back, but like, it doesn't have the staying power of, like, we talked about Hocus Pocus. Like, right. these other cult campy classics that, like, we've all, like, loved throughout the years have aged better i guess like not all of them obviously but in that regard like no it doesn't age well it wasn't successful at the time either so like i'm glad it has its audience i am also a part of that audience but i do see it as a failure of a film no but when you say failure are you talking monetarily are you talking creatively like like, what, what what metric are you using for that So I would say monetarily, I would say with staying power, like, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's bad creatively by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't believe it had the impact that they intended it to. Well, I think it's tricky because I'm, I'm sort of inclined to agree with you, Amelia. And again, this is where I think it's important to draw that distinction between cult, which I think it definitely has, and sort of like success as a general film like one that was released by a major studio that was intended to make money and make a bit of a cultural splash like Mm -hmm. i think the reason that this film has continued to permeate any kind of popular discussion is because it has its fans and those fans are like very ardent about how great it is but like even the fact that i don't know the fact that it's so hard to find the fact that it is so blisteringly un-PC like other movies like say your example of Hocus Pocus the reason that it can continue is because it can continue to find new audiences whereas I think with Drop Dead Gorgeous it's always going to have a certain finite limited appeal because you're just going to like I'm imagining there's a whole generation of young queer people who like to cancel everything that isn't PC and if they watched this movie they would be so incensed that they would just be like oh it has to be burned. I also lean into the Hocus Pocus comparison because both of them were failed by their studios in the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Well, but, but I get why we're comparing it in this scenario to Hocus Pocus, but the difference with that film is it's A, a family film. And I only saw that movie because it aired on the Disney Channel all the time, like mm-hmm. especially around Halloween season. Like that movie, I think they showed it every fucking day. And that's mm-hmm. not an exaggeration. So a lot of people our age, our generation, we grew up watching that movie. That wasn't really the case with Drop Dead Gorgeous because it wasn't right. showing all the time on TV. So... Yeah, it was the sleepovers. It was like your, your your video store rentals where you did find this. But mm-hmm. I only say it's maybe not appropriate to compare the two because there was – they're not the same situation for me because there was no way in ha- – I mean, had Drop Dead Gorgeous received the same treatment as Hocus Pocus playing on the Disney Channel <laughs> every October and whatnot, like maybe it would be more – successful in, in those in, in those terms could be that's what i mean is like this is the kind of content that isn't going to get picked up for and yeah like I'm, i don't want to keep belaboring the point hocus pocus right. is its own unique beast because obviously it's also a seasonally appropriate film right um, well you could argue this one is too 
Yeah, I mean, we're we're having fun by saying this is like an Independence Day film, but it's mostly just because it's like very uh, patriotic. Yeah, there's yeah. one Fourth of July movie. One. <laughs> Literally called. It didn't, it didn't get a sequel either. There is only one. Wait, so you're not counting? I know you did last summer in this. No. <laughs> oh my god. Wait, what is your? Is it Uncle Sam? No, because it's you watch. I know what you Day, did last dumb summer dumb. all the time. <laughs> The Canadian is like, it's Independence Day, asshole. (laughs) Which movie's about Independence Day? Oh, oh, it's Independence Day. (laughs) The one that's literally in the title. Oh my god. So this is an interesting discussion that maybe I can bring one of my two critic pieces in. Because I'm actually really glad that you use the word failure. Because... I'm going to bring in this piece by Emily Colucci for Filthy Dreams. So I was doing research for this. And yeah, I came across Heitzman's article, but I knew that you were going to bring it up, Trace. So I was like, well, what other people are talking about this? And it's a lot of kind of capsule like, hey, I rediscovered this when they put out the blue or when it came to streaming. And it's very Mm -hmm. much like this movie's really great. And I love it. And those are fine. But they're not they're not as in depth. They're not like really digging into things. So I found one piece. Uh, so Emily Colucci has written two, but one doesn't specifically touch on this film, but it was interesting that it came up in my search. It's called Digging Through the Trash Aesthetic. And it's actually about an artist named Andrew Logan. He's in the UK and he does something called the Alternative Miss World Competition, which he started in his studio in 1972. And It became kind of famous among celebrities over in the UK, but he plays a dual gender master mistress of ceremonies, and he reigns supreme over the transformative evening, which takes inspiration from campy dog shows rather than (laughs) vanilla beauty pageants. And it's all about like reducing good taste and bad taste to just like, yeah, these are arbitrary kind of categorizations. But Colucci starts the article by talking specifically about failure within art. So here we go. Here's a quote. Failure is inextricably linked with trash, whether literal garbage, cheaply made throwaway items, economic stagnation, or ignorance of good taste. Obviously, we're talking more about the last one for film. Trash as an aesthetic category is a power bottom, an unlikely source of transgression, particularly a proper, upwardly mobile society and its dominant designations of taste. It upends long-held standards of good taste, requiring a redefinition of the viewer's own understanding and place within these cultural delineations. Trash aesthetics are, oh my god, I have to say it again, irrevocably tied to the term white trash. Trash is typically denoted by garishness, gaudiness, and sometimes vulgarity that directly counters taste as imposed by privilege, white, heteronormative society. <laughs> She's not even talking about the movie. And yet I was like, oh, that, that is it. <laughs> that is what this movie is, right? It's trash aesthetics. Mm-hmm. I mean, so by trash aesthetic, what do, you, what, what do you mean by that? So it's mostly a conversation about good versus bad taste. Like, I, I tried to find what this artist, Andrew Logan, like, what does the alternative Miss World competition look like? And mm-hmm. he's basically using his competition to make fun of beauty pageants, but 
also to say like we're still going to do a swimsuit we're still going to do a talent competition it's just that it's really garish and gaudy and ugly like it's the kind of thing you wouldn't normally be celebrating and i think Mm -hmm. in the case of something like drop dead gorgeous we're taking this thing that's supposed to be the pinnacle statement for young girls you know like we we've upheld women as oh this is an opportunity to get out of your small town to make something of yourself only the best people can win this and yet the whole purpose of drop dead gorgeous is to say no that's facile this is actually super competitive and ugly (laughs) and it doesn't really guarantee you any kind of future we're just lying to you yeah it's like when city folk throw a white trash party yeah (laughs) right (laughs) Or worse, a blackface party. Oh, no. No, one of those is funny and one of them is very, very bad. It was -hmm. was so funny because uh, there's a joke in this movie about Sammy Davis Jr. And, you know, Becky's dad calls him uh, the the Jew. And I I didn't I don't know much about Sammy Davis Jr. And so I, you know, in a wormhole and I was like, oh, yeah, he was Jewish. And then, of course, it's like, oh, notable actors who have portrayed him are Eddie Murphy, uh, Mm -hmm. this other person and Billy Crystal. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I I think there's just something interesting about not just the idea of bad taste, but like reveling in it. Like Drop Dead Gorgeous Mm -hmm. loves to make us uncomfortable by saying everyone is a subject of mockery to the point that we are literally watching a mockumentary. Okay, so talking about again how this film couldn't be made today. What is the last film y'all can think of that was something like this, as transgressive as this, as reveling in bad taste like this that got released? A Ricky Gervais skit. That's not bad. Would we think something like The Boys is like that? No. No. Okay. No, The Boys is incredibly well made. I I think The Boys knows exactly what it's doing, and it's airing on, like, messy, but in a delightfully entertaining way. Yeah, like, I don't even like the first two seasons of The Boys, and I I don't see it as the same. Season three is impeccable, though. Just for the record. I'm, wow. I'm glad you came around. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a longer conversation for a different podcast. For sure, for right. sure. A Daniel Tosh skit. It's really just a bunch of comedians who think they're really smart and really clever and like to punch in the wrong direction. Daniel yeah. Tosh, yeah. that's unfair, but Ricky Gervais earns it. There you go. Well, well, all right, so that, that, that is that is Drop Dead Gorgeous, the production, how it got made and all that shit. So why don't we talk about what happens in this movie? <laughs> All right, so let's dig into it. So we open with text about the documentary that we are about to watch, which is being made to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Sarah Rose Cosmetics American Teen Princess Pageant. This is followed by an introductory video hosted by the one and only Adam West, and then it abruptly cuts into the opening credits of Days of Our Lives. Beautiful Mount Rose, Minnesota. I Okay, that is the literal moment I knew that I was going to love this movie, because he's just holding a card over his mouth, and then we ADR like a Stephen Hawking Oh boy! It's oh also boy. kind of inappropriate out of the gate because even the announcer's voice—it's like Sarah Bose knows blah blah blah. Sarah knows you are a teenage girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it's fucking like Barry White black exploitation porno music, and you're just yes. like, "Hey, what are we doing right now?" Good for Adam West. Huh. I'm glad he was like a sport about this. Well, yeah, and I think this is before he started to do all of his animated sort of spoofs of himself on things like American Dad. Was it American Family Dad guy. or is it Family Guy? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's Patrick Stewart in American Dad. There we go. 
So uh, when the tape gets shut off by a very impatient and annoyed Gladys Lehman, that is Kirstie Alley, she bitches out her second-in-command, Iris, who is played by Mindy Sterling. Uh, it's like a race to the fucking top to decide who is the best person in this movie. I think everybody has moments to shine, but I will say I have really come around to appreciate how genius Mindy Sterling is in this movie. I'm inclined to agree with that statement. So, uh, yeah, the film is set in Mount Rose, Minnesota, population 5,076, and we get a lot of driving shots to establish the vibe of this town. It's a lot of farmers, it's a lot of street sales and parades, and just average-looking folks. Like, you can tell that they shot this in a small town, and these are not extras. These are probably just the people who live there, which maybe makes it worse. You betcha, Iris. But again, it's kind of a thing where it's like, because Williams grew up with this. Like, she knew this. And when the critics were so harsh to it, she she was bummed because she was like, this is so personal to me because this literally mm-hmm. is my life. Like, and yeah. people calling it unrealistic. She's like, but yeah, a lot of this is true. And so I, I get it. Like, yeah, we are lampooning this area of the United States and these types of people. I mean, again, even the accents themselves. I'm debating, would you consider that offensive to have the, the accents like this? Because, I mean, that's what people remember a lot about this movie. But... I don't know, it's kind of towing that Fargo line for me. I don't know, have you been to that part of the South? Like, that's what they sound like. I'm not, like, as the small town hick, no, it's not offensive, it's true. Yeah, but that's the thing, right? And again, even if it it was, quote-unquote, offensive, I'm inclined to be like, but it doesn't really matter because a woman who is from that part of the world who grew up with that wrote it, so... (laughs) Yeah, the offense is the point. Yeah, exactly. Like, a lot of things in this movie, it's part of what's meant to be funny like these are not truly authentic minnesotan accents but they are hyper exaggerated versions like i mean i think the closer if you want more authentic ones it's like you listen to some of the secondary actors right like amy adams is probably more spot on than kirsten dunces i mean they're all more spot on than denise richards (laughs) well there is that yeah, I look. I googled so many different ways of asking, like, why doesn't Denise Richards have it? Because I, I didn't. It had to have been a conscious choice, right? Like, they did they tell her don't do an accent, or did she say I can't do an accent, but will you still hire me? Or did Kirstie Alley come on set and say I'm not doing that? And then Denise Richards says, okay, I guess I grew up with this mom, so I don't have an accent either. I will say I think Denise Richards is actually underrated in this movie. Like, I mean, she has a lot of funny moments, but it's always like, oh, it's it's the Jesus in the it's the Jesus dance or it's the blowing up on the float none of which are really her doing anything i think if you watch her she has a lot of little mannerisms if not because she doesn't have a lot of like funny lines but she has a lot of mannerisms that really really play and jump off screen if you pay attention to them yeah she's also like the catalyst for 90 percent of the humor like even if she isn't the one who's making you laugh like she's the cause of what is causing you to laugh Absolutely. And I, I, Denise Richards, as an actress, I think knows that about herself. But yeah, I mean, whenever uh, her dad's making that joke about Sammy Davis Jr., she, she, you just see her smile that she's plastered on her face break. And it's just so funny. (laughs) Oh, even when she goes into the medical ward and she's like, oh, me without a spot of makeup. And you're just like, I know this girl. This is authentic. But also, it's very smart and clever and playful from. A performance point of view. My husband and I quote the, well, hunting's dangerous all the time. <laughs> like, no matter what, something goes wrong, well, hunting's dangerous. <laughs> I will say, this movie is endlessly quotable. I actively quote several lines from this movie about every couple of days. All the really offensive ones, right? Yeah, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> Speaking of offensive, uh, we're introduced to the mayor who basically talks about how they will not take down a sign of the oldest living woman in the town who is now dead. And you're just like, like, I feel like these are all cues that if you do not like any of this, if you do not find any of this mildly amusing, as always, this may be not a movie for you. Uh, yeah, you'll know in the first 10 minutes immediately. Uh, so if, when I worked at Blockbuster, you know, we had a t- we could put movies on to play on the TVs in the um in the building. And I definitely put on Drive by Gorgeous once. Oh, and- no. <laughs> this monologue. Deader than a goddamn door. I keep telling them to take down the goddamn sign. The goddamn. And I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have put yeah, this maybe on. Maybe not. Maybe not. Hector. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so then we follow Gladys and Iris as they drive to the Mall of America, and they're also brainstorming themes for the pageant. Does anyone have a favorite theme? I mean, they're all great, but I think I definitely quote, a mayor, I can, all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think, the standout one. And and not just because Ali delivers it with, like, such a verve and enthusiasm. You're just She's like, so fucking proud of it. Yeah, yes. you're like, so you're dumb. literally just spelling American. Well, and we it breaks the rule of threes because we get proud to be an American. Bye, American. USA is A-OK. And it's like, okay, we're done. Nope, we got another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's still funny. Can you imagine the theme of one of these pageants was by American? Which is compounded by the joke later where she's like, all of your shit's from Taiwan, dad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his furniture is as fake as, as her orgasms. Yeah, yeah, yep. Okay, so let's meet this year's contestants. So Ugh. I'll run through them. Contestant number three is Leslie Miller, played by Amy Adams. She is a sexually active cheerleader with a hyper-masculine football player boyfriend named Pat, who is played by John T. Olson. And what a standout role. For a first like, debut role, again, small part, but she jumps off the screen in this movie. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you the dumbest anecdote about one of the things that makes me so happy about Drop Dead Gorgeous? Mm-hmm. Always. So... I was a high school cheerleader, uh, a little goth weirdo, (laughs) also a cheerleader. And every single cheerleading anything you see in a film violates Chassa regulations, and it drives me fucking crazy. (laughs) Um, But this movie does not, when she is doing her talent and she's doing the cheer, they have a mat for her to stun on. Oh, nice. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. But, like, it's the same thing with, like, every military movie. Like, I was in ROTC for four years. And so, like, whenever they're wearing their cover inside, I'm like, it's wrong! Blah! It takes you three <laughs> seconds to Google this. Uh, but, yeah, every cheerleading movie violates Chassa regulations, but Drop Dead Gorgeous does not. So, even oh Bring It On violates this. Absolutely. So badly. So badly. <laughs> Endlessly. But the if you take one step outside of that little blue carpet, I will beat your ass. That is absolutely true. If you do step a toe out of line, you are disqualified. Duly noted. Yep. Okay. Contestant number one is Amber Atkins, played by Kirsten Dunst, and she is a tap dancing Diane Sawyer loving girl who does hair and makeup at the local funeral home. Well, we'll put tap dancing in quotation marks because that is definitely not her tap dancing, but I do really love her in this movie. It's interesting because, again, she's the the quote-unquote straight person to everyone else's Mm -hmm. colorful personalities. Which should make this a boring character, and Dunn somehow makes Amber not boring, and you're actively rooting for her for this entire film. A hundred, a hundred percent. I think it's that sort of um, 
idealistic naivete. Like, she's so hungry for life and for opportunity that all you want is for good things to happen to her. And I think that genuine charm is what carries the character through. It doesn't hurt that, yeah, she's surrounded by great people who also augment her performance, but, like, you do root for this character. I'm trying to think, because, like, she'd done Jumanji Interview the Vampire, but, like, she, I guess, she took a... She was transitioning into more adult like, roles. Teen. Yeah, so she's got this, and it doesn't work, and then she does bring it on, and that does. In 2000, yeah, that's it. And then she does Get Over It, which does nothing. <laughs> uh, but I do love Get Over It. I do love Actually, Get Over It. Actually, <laughs> similarly kind of offensive. I quote that movie a lot. Uh, ironically enough, you will hear me joke about that movie later on in this plot synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gladys cues up contestant number six. We have bitchy suck-up Becky Ann Lehman, played by Denise Richards, who is the vice president of the Lutheran Sisterhood Gun Club. <laughs> Not for long. I'm jumping ahead, but whenever whenever Gladys introduces Becky at the pageant to do her little Jesus dance, she's like, and the new president of the, the Lutheran Sisterhood Gun Club. Uh-huh. No shame. No shame at all. It's so good. That girl died like that week. Uh-huh. Yeah, but like it people uh, that shit in this movie is also real. Like the number of people who just inexplicably die in small towns. Like we had four kids in our graduating class who just like randomly bit it in stupid ways. Oh my god, oh, no. Truly, because there's nothing to do, so everybody's on drugs. Uh, yeah, I have heard that. Well, so did the the funeral buffet here with the Jello salad? Did that did that look familiar to you? I would not know. I never went to them because <laughs> I never. I did not speak to anybody. I don't speak to anybody now. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> All right, contestant number seven is Lisa Swenson, played by the one and only Brittany Murphy, and her inspiration is her drag queen brother. Peter. Talk about, though, a potential MVP for this film. And I'm not saying that just because Brittany Murphy is dead, but like, she is... This is one of those movies where I watch it and I'm like, God damn it, I'm so mad she's dead. Like, (laughs) a bright and shining talent right here. It's absolutely between her and Jenny for me, without a doubt. Yeah, there's a part that Brittany Murphy does that is no dialogue at all, and it kills me every single time I watch this movie. Wait, is it when she's laughing during the interviews? Okay. Yes. Like, I I fully started cackling to the point that my husband looked over and he was like, oh, God, what are you doing right now? <laughs> no, does he not like this movie? Oh, no, he, he, he just thinks I'm funny for liking it as much as I do. Okay, well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, contestant number two is Tess Winehouse, played by Shannon Nelson, and she uh, is better with dogs than she is with people. Same. We can all relate. Yeah. <laughs> Contestant number five is Molly Howard, played by Tara Redden-Penning, and she's an all-American adopted daughter of Japanese immigrants. This is when we get our first R word here, but I will tell you that this line never fails to make me laugh, because it comes out of nowhere. It just seems so mean. You're like, it's like, do you not love your other daughter? (laughs) The answer is kind of no. I almost think that, because I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I feel like this is playing on Americans' stereotypes and perceptions of asian americans well it it is and it isn't because i think it's kind of the reverse of what we expect normally what we would see and i'm going to give credit to peaches christ's own podcast episode on this for midnight mass where i think what we traditionally see is american parents who have adopted a japanese child and then it's trying to like 
either they overcompensate by going like, oh, we're all Japanese and that kind of stuff. So we don't normally see this, but also, yeah, it's very much playing on they're so desperate to fit in. Well, but I, I, I'm also just talking about, like, I, I, I can cut this out if this is weird, but like normal quote unquote Americans wouldn't expect an Asian American man to say something like this because, again, the stereotype is that they're, you know, intelligent, like brainy, bookish and like not not offensive. Hmm. I mean, it, it's definitely unexpected because we haven't gotten any kind of clue that they would say something like that. Yeah, I could see it playing potentially on cultural stereotypes. Cultural stereotypes. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Contestant number four is wannabe actor Michelle Johnson, played by Laurie Sinclair, and she fashions herself after former winner Connie Rudrud, who loves St. Paul pork products so much that she now works at the factory. This is also a regular quote in this household. Whenever we say we love something so much, I work here now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's also the, the the blood splatter on her apron, which is just mm -hmm. perfect. Yeah, I don't know about you, Amelia, but this is when I first start picking up on a very strong class critique of this movie. Like the by American is kind of your your secret subtle one early on. But for this one, I'm just like, oh, she is a former winner. And the joke is that she never made it out of town. And obviously, we're laughing at her expense, because she's a bit of a pathetic figure. But I think it's also the movie telegraphing, like, it's not that easy to get out of these small town situations, like even when you drink big. Yeah. And I mean, like Kirstie Alley's character, like we discover later that she also won, but never went anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, the former winner who is uh, yeah, struggling in the anorexic ward. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. going into the class critique, even though uh, as as bleak and kind of mean spirited as this movie is, I, I do think it's interesting that, yeah, the people that are of quote unquote lower class, the ones living in the trailer park are the ones that are more genuinely happy, even though they mm -hmm. have less than what their richer counterparts have. Yeah. And I mean, like the hierarchy that they're talking about is so, so real. And that's why you see them being the happier, more honest characters, because they have to deal with all this other shit, but they also have to deal with the rich Republicans of their town who pretend like they're helping everybody, but really they're just awful cows. Well, no, and that's like that's the thing, Joe. What you were saying earlier about white trash. Like, I mean, the Annette, Annette, and Loretta are that that they stereotype, are. that yeah, that absolutely. label. But again, they're so genuinely, they're acidic and acerbic, but they're still so genuinely nice to each other and to Amber. Which again, that, that to me is, is a subversion of just your typical tropes. Well, in something like this. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those situations where I would be interested to hear from any listeners who hail from this part of the country, just to give us a sense of like, do they... Do they see this completely as, oh, you're playing on offensive stereotypes and that's unfortunate? Or do they see hey, these characters are actually the most genuine. And yes, we're still making fun of them and some of the stereotypes, but also like of all the characters that you would most relate to or want to hang out with, it is the quote unquote trailer trash. The answer to that question absolutely depends on whether or not they left or if they stayed in that same culture. Uh, Sincerely. Okay. The number of people who stuck around in my hometown and popped out three kids and got married to somebody that they fucking hate is not insignificant and they'll absolutely tell you oh my god i'm living the american dream i'm so happy oh my god can we please go out i hate all my children let's go let's go let's go yeah. anyway uh, anyway <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so contestant number eight is Janelle Betts, played by Sarah Stewart, and she's doing interpretive dance while signing through the eyes of love. And then our final contestant is number nine, Tammy Curry, played by Brooke Elise Bushman. And Tammy is a jock who fancies herself a winner until she blows up on an exploding thresher. So what I find very interesting about this, because I, I do think Tammy is coded lesbian. Oh, absolutely. Yes. But but, but but I love this idea that she was the front runner to win this pageant mm-hmm. in this very conservative, small Minnesota town. Well, it's because I think she's a coded lesbian who doesn't go for women. They talk about how she liked to ride the lawnmower so that she could basically masturbate. But <laughs> The lawnmower? <laughs> thresher? Is there a it's difference? a thresher. <laughs> you know, the sitting... The sitting lawnmower. <laughs> it's a farm machine. Yeah, that too. That too. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, I, I've always found that very interesting because honestly, I mean, I know that this is like, she's the first victim, uh, mm-hmm. but I've always wanted to see what she would have done in this pageant that was going to get her first place. Oh, yeah. What was Tammy's talent, do you think? Guns. Oh, maybe. Yeah, she could do like a, a kind of like shooting demonstration or something but she's got to masturbate on this thresher before she blows up (laughs) basically calms the nerves so we cut to the women's bathroom we get uh our introduction to this movie loves to do cutaways to really memorable supporting characters that only have a couple of scenes and these two pregnant girls who are either smoking or drinking throughout the entire movie are one of them they suggest that the pageant is a roach motel. Girls check in, but they don't check out. I feel like this bathroom is the same one in Jawbreaker and the same one in Scream. Right? Yeah. <laughs> These girls the who same. don't go to class, they just talk and gossip and maybe smoke or do their hair. So let's cut to chain-smoking choreographer Cloris Klinghagen, who is played by Mary Gillis. And now that Tammy is out of the picture, she gives odds that it's all going to come down to Becky versus Amber. So we've introduced that memorable character. We jump then to the hospital where we go to the eating disorders wing because it does have its own wing at this hospital. And we see that Amber is doing the hair of former winner Mary Johansson, who is played by Alexandra Holden. And this is when Becky sneaks in pretending like she comes here all the time. This, I mean, from from the just a little snarl to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to everything Denise Richards says in this scene. She's skinny, Amber, not deaf. Not deaf. Oh, I feel so guilty for laughing at it, but oh my god. Because we're laughing at eating disorders here. Well, are yes. we laughing at eating disorders or are we laughing at Becky's uh, lack of knowledge about eating disorders? Yes. Yes. I think we're we're laughing because the film is so brazen. Like, this is an untouchable, unforgivable set of jokes with this character, to the point where I could see some of the criticisms that critics threw at this movie, where it's like, oh, it's tone deaf, it's not funny, like, it's just hammering these same really bad jokes, poor taste, and you're like, yes, but that is the point. Like, well, these jokes are here because they are so offensive and such bad taste we are primed for it though because jan does this really because I, I admittedly i don't frequent hospitals very much but i don't 
think hospitals have an eating disorder wing, no, right? Of course no. not. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> this is like a sketch comedy thing that you would expect to see on the state. Yeah. Also, it's made a little better because she is actually being treated for her eating disorder, yeah, right. which you never see. So like mm-hmm. it it immediately it does this thing where it it sets you up to feel safe to laugh at it. And it doesn't right. make it any better that we're laughing at it, but like the film goes out of its way to be like Listen, she's fine, mm-hmm. but like, also, we're gonna be terrible. Yes, I mean, this is part of a larger conversation again about the bad taste of this film. I don't know. Do y'all feel like you ever have to defend your liking of this film given the content? No, I I laugh at Wild Wild West, which is <laughs> way fucking worse than this movie. The social justice warrior, like, self righteous asshole. So, like, if I don't, other people shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. valid yeah. point. <laughs> I I don't feel the need to defend it now because I do feel like if I'm going to mention it to people, they're probably going to be the people who are already on side with this film. But like when I saw this movie and my sister and I died laughing back in 1999 and then tried to justify laughing at it when people walked out, it was a harder sell. Yeah. I'm just thinking about my reaction to, I mean, uh, to, that's a pull up Freeway again, Joe, but like my reaction mm-hmm. to Freeway last year when I was like, wait, no, this is funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess my other problem is that, or not problem, but like I might be a bad litmus test for this because I don't believe in guilty pleasures. Yeah, right. Like just, just like what you like, I don't give a shit. They're just pleasures. No, but I mean, There's no guilt it's in just them. like the social pressure to be like, this is not okay. This is un-PC. You shouldn't like... But that's where we're getting to that that issue of, if you like a film, does that mean you're endorsing its content? Which, I mean, again, Mm -hmm. again, I don't think this film is endorsing any of this content, but it's like, I feel like it's a thing where I I feel like if I tell some people, oh yeah, I love this movie, they're like, oh, that's not okay. It goes back to the conversation of you cannot judge past art on current cultural standards. If this movie came out today, yes, it would be a huge fucking problem. But it mm-hmm. didn't come out today. It came out 20 fucking years ago. Okay, so, and y'all may hate me for this. I I, that, I, I get that and I agree, but it also kind of makes me sad because I want movies like this to come out today. Like, I want to see a movie that's going to make me feel as uncomfortable, but also make me laugh as much as this one does. And it kind of makes me sad that we will not get something like this again i believe that about you i feel like we we could still get something like this but i think it would be sort of updated offensive cultural norms that would have a better understanding of like where the line is like i'm hoping we will never get a movie that is dropping the r word as often as this movie does but that's because we're like like that isn't funny to do anymore but there might be something else that we could put in where it's like ooh. Are we really doing this right now? I just watched both seasons of Euphoria and Maddie drops the R word a lot. And that is a Gen Z show. (laughs) This is true. But I would also, oh, actually, you know what? That's not a bad example in terms of like a confrontational text, right? Like Sam Levinson very clearly delights in making people uncomfortable. I would also argue anything that Quentin Tarantino does, right? Like he loves. Oh, yeah. He loves his word. To pretend like he is. Yeah. He also likes to endanger his artists. So, yeah. like, that's a whole different Oprah. Actually, mm-hmm. I am a little surprised we don't have racial slurs in this movie. There are no black people. Oh, Where's yeah, that? that's true. <laughs> like, they're not allowed in that town. Like, I don't. Uh, we we had one black kid in town and his family literally got chased out of it. Like, that's oh why God. I'm such a loudmouth about racial issues, because everybody's like, oh, sunset towns don't exist anymore. My fucking ass, they don't. Uh, of course yeah. they do. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, all these people who grew up in these cities who think racial problems are just like, oh, those aren't real anymore. Baby girl? Yeah, they are. Well, those people need to get off the fucking internet and, like... Yeah. Go outside. Yeah. Well, let's do some home visits. Let's meet some of the folks, shall we? So we meet Amber's mother, Annette, who is played by Ellen Barkin. And honestly, this role is kind of fearless. I do think she often gets overshadowed by Alison Janney because Alison Janney gets more like inappropriate things. But Ellen Barkin, I think, is just so, so fucking good in this role. My favorite moment, it's not even a spoken line from her, but it's when Becky is doing her Jesus dance and we just cut. And she's cracking up cracking up yes, because <laughs> she's high as a kite she's so fucking high <laughs> i love it okay so this is when we also meet becky's racist furniture salesman so i guess we do get some racism because it's all against mexican yeah people. it's yeah. all about mexico and you're just like oh my god no slurs so thankfully but like this it does actively constantly just be like oh, i purchased it purchased it from my friends in mexico i tried to pay <laughs> them in tacos oh my god <laughs> <Yeah>. no. <laughs> monster see where you're like and that line is super offensive and also hilariously funny but i feel like that is an example of us laughing at the character because he's so fucking stupid yeah you're laughing at the discomfort you're not laughing because it's funny i mean look not to drop this bomb in here but it reminds me honestly not it's not dissimilar to that that scene in licorice pizza that everyone was up at arms about this year which again okay nope that that scene's bad well, but, but, but that's what I'm, well, okay, context of the film, completely different. But again, it's like something where it's like, I do still think we're laughing at, at the at the bigotry in that scene, not the actual like character herself. But that being said, that's something that came out this year. <laughs> so it's yeah. also such a very, very different time period. Like it's current. We, we are now grown adults who have learned new contexts and certain grown adults refuse to use those new contexts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's a film made today that was set in the 70s. So I think that was his excuse. It's fine, you guys. Grooming is fine, so long as it is the woman grooming the man. Let's continue. Oh, I'm okay. I'm sorry. (laughs) We moved on to a completely different conversation about licorice pizza. (laughs) Uh, To be continued offline. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to the gym. (laughs) Actually, we're we're watching Gladys checking out underage wrestling (gasps) members, but... um, Speaking of grooming... Perfect segue! (laughs) Nailed it! Uh, Yes, and also speaking... Okay, yeah, we're we're in the thick of it now because we're also introducing the judges. Uh, John Doe. One is John Doe, who is played by Matt Malloy, and he is both a pharmacist and also a a sort of burgeoning slash active pedophile. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's active. Uh, The the way he cannot resist saying the word young Young in front of the word girls. (laughs) Yeah. Big yikes. Like, he's clearly a convicted sex offender. Yep. And that's why he's actively like, I yep. don't know, I've never looked at a girl in my life to the camera crew. Exactly. Uh, I do love that apparently Matt Malloy, the, the actor, is regularly recognized. But in one of those, I conflate you with the character you play. So young girls are like, you're a pervert. Uh, it's like Tony Goldwyn getting sl- like uh, slapped at a restaurant because that woman didn't like him in Ghost. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> like, you have to be able to separate the character from the actor. Uh, okay, our second judge is hardware store owner Harold Vimes, who is played by Mike McShane, and he has a mentally disabled younger brother named Hank, who is played by Will Sasso. So this is interesting, because Will Sasso has gone on to have a fairly successful career. Yeah, Mad TV. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he was on, I think the last thing I saw him, he was on Mom, he was a regular on Mom, because he was dating Jamie Presley in the show, but like, oh, okay. I'm a little surprised that this role hasn't 
come back to haunt him in a way? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think this is definitely what Amelia was talking about, where you have to look at this. Like, I've covered a number of, like, movies from the 80s and 90s. Like, we were doing erotic thrillers where we were casting able-bodied folks into people with disability roles and then using them strictly as plot devices. So this was pretty common shit. I mean, what? what, what when did I Am Sam come out, right? Oh, God. That's in the... I think that's in the 2000s. Like 2000s? 2000s. <laughs> Tom Hanks literally just like just did an interview on this today where he was well not even that but like he was talking about uh not disabilities but casting straight actors in homosexual roles he was like like listen when I did it we didn't know but like that shit would not fly today um yeah and I talked about this a bit in our our YouTube episode where we our horror queers hangout where we talked about the status of queer horror so please go check that out for my thoughts on that debate because I <sighs> I, I have thoughts on that. Yeah, and it's part of a larger conversation that we can really unpack. Yes, absolutely. But anyway, sorry, back to this film. I'm going to derail us. No, that's fine. So we've got our third judge who, as we've mentioned, is played by the screenwriter Loda Williams. And she is, I wrote down mute. She's not actually, she just doesn't ever say anything. But she's basically uh, Lester's assistant at the furniture store, which is further proof that this whole competition is a farce because like how can you have these people on the judging panel and be objective well and you know he, he's racist against mexicans in this movie but he's also plenty anti-semitic because what does he tell the person uh don't jew me down too much on that dinette set yeah. oh boy he's a real piece of work Mm-hmm. All right, so let's watch the young girls. <clears throat> sorry, um, <laughs> let's watch the contestants practice the group number. And this is where Tess injures her crotch on the stepladder accident. And every time I watch this movie, I quote, "Get over it," where a character falls on their crotch, and then they are told to ice the front bum. <laughs> the f- <laughs> I've never caught that line. <laughs> Okay, but we need to spend a little bit more time with Amber. So we're in the cafeteria. She is working there. We see that Becky is hitting on a boy named Brett Clemens, who is played by Casey Garvin. And he isn't interested in Becky, so he's actually asking out Amber. Unfortunately, he does this in front of Becky. So that's not going to end well for him. We take a quick pause so we can jump back to the trailer because Amber is suspicious. She doesn't want to talk to the camera crew at school. But at the trailer, we are introduced to Loretta, the one and only Allison Janney. And she thinks that Amber deserves to win because she is most smartest. Because, Amelia, because you were saying that, you know, it's a cross between Brittany Murphy and Jan- Allison Janney for your MVP of the film. What is it about Allison Janney's performance that really, like, strikes for you? She's just the fucking pitch perfect caricature. It is it is exactly right. It is so funny. <laughs> like she's just and it's Janny bringing like her it's it's like her character in in Mom on steroids. Mm, yeah. And it works. Wait, did you watch Mom? Yeah. Oh my I, I color sorry, no whenever I tell people I watch Mom, they're like the CBS show and I'm like, mm-hmm. "Yes, it was really good." <laughs> Anna Ferris deserves the world. Uh, yes. yes. We actually just talked about Anna Ferris in our Jurassic Park because I was like, Ugh, I totally sided with Anna Ferris in the divorce. And I'm like, I just want good things for her. There are certain people where yeah. you're like, I want you to have good things. And then unfortunately, it's the dickheads who always get all the good stuff. She loved you when you had nothing, you garbage person. Yeah. I hope you have a terrible day. Well, definitely listen to her podcast Unqualified because yeah. uh, that's a, like, it really feels like you're just having a conversation with her. She's very nice on that. 
Um, so Amber ends up having to go into work at the Larson Funeral Parlor, and unfortunately, this is where she discovers that Brett has been shot directly between the eyes. This is where we get a smash cut to Becky at the gun club. <laughs> well, <laughs> Just in case you had any questions about who did it. Well, okay, 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 okay. So this is technically a murder mystery, but the film isn't really interested in the murder mystery aspect of this, because Mm -mm. is there ever a doubt that it's not Kirstie Alley's character? Yeah, you can't call it a murder mystery. Like, there's no mystery. Yeah. It's just murder. (laughs) Which, look, this is a five-star movie. I love this movie, but I do almost wish we had more of a body count in this film, and that there was, yes, a bit more of a mystery to it. Well, and it's not just Kirstie Alley. Yeah, I would say Becky committed this murder, and I think Kirstie Alley does the other two. Yeah. I Oh, see, I never really thought that. I always assumed it was just Kirstie Alley working on her own, because we never really get that call. Well, because she's dead. Trace, I literally <laughs> just said, and then we smash cut to Becky well, at the gun club. <laughs> but I know, I know, I just assumed that she told her mom, and her mom took care of it for her. Like, I, I figured she knew her mom was doing it, but I didn't know, like, if she was actually killing people. No, because, right. like, she benefits from her daughter not being distracted by this dude anymore. Yes, I could definitely see Gladys doing it for all those reasons, but I think because we have seen Becky do the sharpshooter and she is, like, yeah. a shot, I was like, oh, he was shot right between the eyes. That's a marksman. I just, <laughs> he did? Yeah. Hunting's dangerous. Anyway, let me tell you about my thing. <laughs> let me show you my gun that i got when i was five or nine or whatever yeah so we get a little bit more of amber talking about you know she doesn't have time for boys and it's all very sad uh she also mentions that someone has been sending her threatening images of like tammy in her locker (laughs) and then she's called home because her trailer has exploded but her mom is alive albeit with a can of beer fused to her hand when my dad and I walked out of the haunting, now my mom and sister were mad because our the haunting is like fucking two hours long and they were it's waiting so forever. Long. Oh my god! <laughs> but I was like, we were like, oh, how was your movie? My mom was very much like a, Ugh. and my sister was like, oh yeah. I mean, so this the she, she took me to the post. She goes, that girl blows up on a float that looks like a swan, and this <gasps> one blows up in a trailer, no! and a beer can gets fused to her hand. And I was like, shut up. <laughs> No, I didn't care. I was like, what? Oh, you were like, what? <laughs> I what have is to this see movie? this movie. <laughs> well, because the poster is very disarming. Like, the the cover art that we see is not quite the same as what the poster was. It was just a lineup of headless girls in bathing suits with, like, the sashes. And then there's, like, the dead limb of, like, another person on the ground. So you're like, okay, I know somebody's gonna die because it's also in the title, but you don't expect people to be blown up. But that's that marketing, because the marketing was, like, it made it look like, even though, yes, there's a dead body on it, but it's, like, it's not, it looks funny, but Mm -hmm. even the the color palette of this poster, which is, like, pink and purple, it's very much going for, yeah, that clueless crowd. This doesn't look like a dark comedy based on the poster alone. And also, they're really pushing the cast of this film. Yeah, which is surprising, because, like, as we said, most of these people are famous now but they were not super super famous then yeah i think it was just kirstie alley who was like the home run here yeah and i think ellen barkin but like not for the target audience that they were going after or maybe they weren't thinking teen girls well unless they watched it takes two when they were growing up all right, mm-hmm. moving on, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> you too it's a great movie it is so ever just <laughs> <laughs> 
So Amber tries to quit the pageant because she's scared. Uh, So Annette hits her in the head with the beer can, but then they hash it out because they realize it's still her best chance of getting out of Mount Rose. And she's not like her dad, who is a carny. uh, So she doesn't have that luxury of traveling around, I guess. All right, let's do some interviews. So uh, the girls are briefed on how to sit properly. I never realized that sitting cross-legged meant that you uh, were a streetwalker, but that's according to Gladys. Did you not see The Princess Diaries? I have, but after the fact. (laughs) (laughs) That's what Julie Andrews says. She says you look like a whore if you uncross your legs like that. Does Julie Andrews use the word whore in that movie? (laughs) I might be paraphrasing, but I think that's what she says. (laughs) I feel like that's a word Julie Andrews has never uttered in real life. I disagree. Okay. <laughs> she says slag. There we go. British for whore. So. British for whore. All right. So uh, of the following questions, which would the two of you most like to answer in an interview situation? If you could be any tree in the woods, what kind of tree would you be? Who would you pick to be president, dead or alive? Or do you like to swim? <laughs> The tree one. I think the tree one's the most interesting, right? <laughs> Do you have an answer for this, Amelia? I would absolutely be a whip- weeping willow. Oh! oh! Yeah, they're great fucking trees. But I don't know. I, I, I think I personally would go for one with good strong roots in a town like Mount Rose, <laughs> a solid Christian trunk, and oh long God. leafy branches to provide shade for handicapped kids on a hot summer day. <laughs> To which you're like, yeah, we're going to see how you and your mom interact with Hank later on in this movie. And you oh don't God. give a shit about handicapped kids, ma'am. This, this scene, I, I, I would be terrible at beauty pageants, though, because, yeah, questions like this, I'm like, that doesn't, no, that does not compute with my brain. Well, they're all kind of ridiculous, but they're meant to provide insight into who you are. So, like, Amelia's answer tells us about the kinds of things she's interested in. But I don't know. I think the who would you pick to be president? I'm always like, no, do the dead celebrity that you could invite to dinner. That's way more interesting. Yeah. These interview questions are the exact same reason that people ask offbeat questions in job interviews. Yeah. They don't care about your answer. They just want insight into you. Mm. Wait. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Amelia, have you been an interviewer? Well, I know you have been, but like for jobs and stuff. So have you had to ask a question like this before? And if so, what is the weirdest one you've had to ask? <laughs> so, Amelia, tell us about your experience on the job interview panel, and if so, provide an example. <laughs> so, I always got to make the questions because I like I've been a hiring manager before. Nice. Yeah. So, like, I would always ask like very uh, me dumb questions, like, "What's your favorite?" comic book or who's your favorite superhero and why because oh, okay. who's your favorite superhero and why answers a lot of questions about a lot of folks mm-hmm. yeah it's true. yeah and that's also like very a very you question to yeah. ask yeah <laughs> well you're looking for a good fit with someone right yeah and like it's not even necessarily like if you answer the punisher and all you say is the punisher i'm gonna be like all right Ooh, mega flag. weirdo get the fuck out of here <laughs> <laughs> but If you answer the Punisher with some sort of deeper answer than just, I like that he murders a bunch of folks, like, it's figuring out compatibility. It's figuring out who you are as a person, and if you're willing to give a deeper answer than one word, like, it's, there's a lot to it. So the Punisher, if I say the Punisher, because I really relate to his, 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 the the feeling of extreme loss he's felt in Rock Bottom and how he's climbing his way out of it, albeit through immoral means, but I can still relate to that feeling that he felt. (laughs) Yeah, like you yeah, don't even have to qualify go. the immoral means. I don't care if you think superheroes should kill or not. Mm-hmm. 
And, like, you can see people try and figure out what the right answer is, too. And that always tells you, like, this isn't the right candidate because they're not actually being genuine. They want to know what answer I want to hear. They're trying to game the system. Yeah. Yeah. What answer would you like me to give you? Yeah. (laughs) What do you want me to say? (gasps) Well, in the case of Amber, that would be all of the United States in the correct alphabetical order and spelled. It only takes her three and a half minutes. I'm I'm impressed by that, but also, I mean, I live in a place that only has, like, I think eight provinces and three territories, so it wouldn't take me nearly as long. Okay, but can you spell Saskatchewan? Uh, it doesn't have a key. <laughs> I can tell that. <laughs> I'm a really good speller, and I Oh, it does I have paused. a K. Oh, my God, it does have a K. <laughs> Canadians, don't kill me. <clears throat> Sorry, Amelia, continue, please. Nope, that was it. <laughs> also, I'm sorry, Joe. The, the the part that you like with uh with Brittany Murphy is when she's like, "I love to swim." When I was in New York, mm-hmm. I met Greg Louganis at one of my brother's shows, and then she just doesn't yeah. stop laughing for about twenty yeah. seconds. <laughs> You're just like she goes on for so long. It's so amazing. Just the the way she does it. It's oh, it's something only Brittany Murphy could do. Like, and yeah. I know that sounds facetious because actors can do a lot of things, but like. It's such a her moment. Uh, well, it's her voice. Her she has a trademark voice. Like it's a little hoarse and raspy, but like not hoarse and raspy. Oh, she's so mm-hmm. good. I love her. Um, okay, so we're back to one of the lines that I quote all the time from this movie. We we do a quick little cutaway to Mary at the hospital. She's last year's winner, in case you've forgotten. So she is counting down the two week period before the pageant. So. Within two weeks, I was practicing my talent, I was finishing my costume, I was brushing up on current events, and running 18 miles a day on about 400 calories. (laughs) I was ready. Okay, so let's do a dress rehearsal. So we learned that Leslie is nervous about her pregnancy, and also the pageant. Uh, We learned that Becky's dress was designed by one of her father's many Mexican workers. He raises them from the poverty they know in Mexico. (laughs) So bad. And you're just like, you don't even like him, Becky. You don't need to say these kinds of things. Except she's doing it for the camera, of course. Yeah, I I love that. We never truly get to see Becky, like, in her, like, who she really is, outside of, like, fleeting moments when she drops that act. Yeah, you can see her in the reactions. I think the most explicit piece is when she flips out when the judges don't come back with their deliberations quickly enough for her. (laughs) You're like, yeah, Yeah. there there you are, Becky. We see you. So Janelle ends up swapping numbers with Amber because she has heard that she has a new deaf niece or nephew. And unfortunately, when she goes to perform during the dress rehearsal, she is beamed in the head by a falling light. And this is when Amber realizes that her life was at risk. So I love Again, she says, my cousin just had a deaf baby and I get to go see it like that. Like it's a zoo animal. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I again, logic doesn't matter here. But I know the light was meant for Amber's head. But was it set on a timer? Yeah. Or or presumably Gladys had somebody up there ready to release it. Or she I mean, she is in the wings. So hypothetically, she could have like released a rope or flipped a switch or something like that. But. It It doesn't make any sense. Pretty specific. So let's move on to the actual pageant itself. We get Gladys introing the opening number, which uh, this year's theme is proud to be an American. 
Is that for me or my gown? She got a fat ass then. She got a fat ass now. I love it. I love it. So the girls emerge wearing large headpieces that are meant to kind of like what Amelia said. It's it's almost like that job interview question all over again, right? Uh, whatever their headpiece yeah. is, is meant to reflect who they are as contestants. This is that trash aesthetic you were talking about earlier, too. Yeah. I do love Becky's. To live in a country where you can take an ugly old mountain and put faces on it. <laughs> the faces of what? Great American men who, who stood and fought hard for our country. <laughs> yeah. Did make our country super great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, then. Sure. Sure, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Backstage, we learn that Amber's costume has gone missing, so she accuses Becky, and they fight a little bit about it. One of the small little details I do love about this movie is that we eventually learn that both Iris, as well as the choreographer, also hate the Lehmans. Like, when Mm -hmm. Iris breaks them up, she's like, I know, I know, I hate her too. But she also then doesn't help Amber when she could. And that, that, I I, I love, yes, Mindy Sterling's great in this movie, but yeah, Iris is unfortunately like, she's such a weird character that yeah she's the gladys is lackey and she does hate her but she never takes a step to undermine her well no because she knows she'll lose yeah because gladys has all the power right and it's not just like oh it's her pageant and she's the former winner and she now runs it it's like she's the richest woman in town you don't cross the richest woman in town amber atkins that is not america miss american teen princess pageant language (laughs) where did the kids get this stuff so on stage we see mary recreating her winning lip sync to don't (gasps) cry out loud and she is in a wheelchair and she does have a nurse pushing her okay so (laughs) this again we laugh it's super offensive but we still laugh i love this i mean like do we need to talk about anything with this I mean, I think between this and Becky's Jesus, like, it's almost the two different sides of how to do offensive comedy. Like, I can absolutely understand why people would look at this and just be like, I can't, like, fuck this movie or this and turn it off. I would understand completely. I think that this is hitting just the right uncomfortable offensive note. And then we're also showcasing how hypocritical and just ridiculous Becky is with her statement performance right and to let and actually this ties back into just the religiousness of the town so denise richards in an interview two years ago where she talked about how during one scene of this movie a lot of the background actors walked off the set now hmm. can you guess what scene that was it was not this scene it was her dancing with jesus because that yeah. was offensive of course <laughs> I can tell you one of the people who walked out of my theater, that was, it it was in this scene and Becky's dancing with Jesus. (laughs) A step too far, I guess. It just makes, I mean, out of all the scenes in this movie that you could get so offended by that you leave, it's the dancing Jesus scene. Which is funny because it's, I believe comedy should punch up and not punch down. And this movie does not pass that test at all. But when it's ragging on Christians, it's one of the few moments where it is passing that test. Okay, I was thinking about that today. Okay, I'm I'm bringing another movie, and I'm really sorry about this. But so I watched Dash Cam for the for the first and only time this week. But but no, but but that is a film where obviously it is very right maga trumper like it, it, that is what you are watching the film is clearly doing that and i struggled with it because i was like oh i do like parts of this movie but i hate the film's politics so much that i yeah i can't in good faith recommend or in good conscience recommend this movie and so i was thinking okay what if we had a drop dead gorgeous what if drop dead gorgeous was this 
but it was flipped. We were making fun of uh, of progressives and liberals instead of conservatives and, uh, and overly religious people. That would make this a very different viewing experience, wouldn't it? <sighs> yes. I, I think so. Because it changes the direction that you punch. Yes, it is changing the direction that you're punching. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I have a point with this. It's just... I mean, to me, they're not necessarily making fun of Christians. They're making fun of a very specific type of Christian. And that's like the holier-than-thou, very artificial on the surface. Like, the Lehmans pretend that they are the best thing about this town. And it's only when Gladys is revealed to be like a murdering monster that everyone sees that artifice shrugged off. But I don't mm-hmm. think that this movie is saying all Christians are bad. I don't think it's saying Absolutely all rich not. people are bad. I'm, I think it's saying like people who do this or act this yeah. way are hypocrites and they're assholes. Yeah. I mean, I again, I'd be interested to know. It's like if people from this part of the country who have a deep religious faith, are they like, fuck, this movie is really targeting me and it's unfair. Like, I'd be interested to know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to, do we have any like really conservative listeners? I find that unlikely, but on right. the off chance that we do, <laughs> yes, I, I am curious to know the answer to that question. <laughs> Congratulations on making it this far into the podcast. <laughs> that applies to you. All right, so backstage we see that the girls are getting ready for their big step ladder dance number, and unfortunately Mm. they have only recently been painted, so they do make a mess of both their bottoms and their arms, and this is to the delight of John Doe as well as a heavily medicated Annette, but for very different reasons. I think I have... Like when I first watched this movie, <laughs> I think I rewound this scene and watched it about twenty times before I even got to the end of the movie. Just because you found it so funny, that's so fucking <laughs> hilarious. Like yeah. it, it's just that they're having getting paint on them. That's it. That's the only <laughs> funny part of this scene. But it's so funny. It works, and it's funny because it's happening to all of them, and they all have to pretend like it's not happening. But then everyone in the audience is just like. What the fuck is happening up there? (laughs) All right. So we get to see uh, little snippets of each of the contestants, frankly, mediocre talents. And during this time, we see that the choreographer, Miss Kay, has given Amber a new costume. Unfortunately, it was not pre-approved, so she is not allowed to wear it. It goes against the rules. (laughs) So Lisa ultimately gives Amber her costume. And this is when Becky does her performance, which, as we mentioned, is ridiculous. Also, one of the most gifable shots when she just like flies across the stage with that Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think for me, the absolute kicker is when the number is over. And instead of just wheeling Jesus on the cross off, she bends him over her back to pretend like she is carrying him. And you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, literally, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Who's the figure that helped Jesus on the cross? Was it Simon? I think Simon. She's being Simon. She's helping him carry the cross. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I mean, also, it's when she pulls his hands off of the cross. She pulls his... (laughs) I guess this is kind of offensive. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, just a little bit, yeah. What? 
was that (laughs) that was swedish (laughs) definitely swedish irish yeah okay let's move on let's move on so after gladys barely introduces amber because of course she thought she's gotten rid of amber at this point we see that dunce's tap double is going to get a work over but uh, everybody really likes that performance so she seems like a shoe-in to win this is what my husband does to me all the time when i'm talking he'll just come out and be like okay okay The judges retire to make the toughest, most rigged decision of their lives. And then we we briefly learn that Janelle is now deaf from the blow to her head. And she's very happy about it. Which again, you're like, okay, well, this is like, I guess a positive depiction of disability because Janelle got a happy result. Oh, fuck. I, well, oh. I mean, I, the, I, I, the film never for once makes fun of deaf people. So, I mean, th- 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 there's that going for it. Yeah, I mean, like, she is legitimately excited by deaf people, and then she becomes one. Now, I think you could argue that the film is, well, not the film, because the other characters are making fun of her for being this into deaf people. But yeah, I never feel like the film is, is, is... coming down on her for that. We also get our first of two fucks in this PG-13 film, uh, whenever John Doe get, get, goes off on uh, Harold and his brother and says, "Why the well, for fuck's sake, why didn't you leave him with a sitter? And I just, I think it's funny that we have two fucks in this movie. I mean, not funny, it's interesting. The sitter's dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, the, 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 the two fucks in this movie aren't even, like, good ones. They're not like, oh, yeah, like, you're going to save your fuck for that? No, no, no. It's this, and we get fucking beauty queens blowing chunks everywhere. Oh, see, I do kind of like that one. I just wish we had a kick, one of our characters saying fuck. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the judges are back with the results. We find out that Leslie's third. Amber is, of course, second. And Gladys hyperventilates as Trace has already given the line. <laughs> it is her daughter, Rebecca and Lehman. I do enjoy the eye rolls from, like, so many of these, like, bit players that we see. Like, there's this old woman with a very sour face in the audience, and she's just like, ugh, of course. And again, so we're about 65, maybe 70 minutes into this 97 minute movie. And this feels like the movie's about to end. Mm -hmm. And I remember on a first time, it was very jarring for me because it's like the energy is going down. And then, we, oh, God, we got to pick this shit back up again. I know we've already kind of talked about this, but it is just it's mind boggling to me that there are still 30 minutes left of this movie. Yep. So very quickly, we have Amber crying. We have Lisa screaming that Peter is gay to her seemingly confused father. (laughs) I am a little surprised. So, I mean, this is I would call this a very queer movie, but there Mm -hmm. isn't really any explicit. There's no queer character. I mean, outside of, again, maybe Tammy. Tammy is the closest we get. Yeah. But um, I I am a little surprised that given everything above, we don't have a queer character, even a gay man here. But uh, because, Amelia, you grew up in a town like this. Were you? People were not out. uh, Okay. That's a loaded question. How was that for you? (laughs) People were not out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Nope. Nope. Didn't happen. Nope. had to go to the Sin Cities, like... Minneapolis and St. Paul. Like, it's the same way with, like, everybody keeps showing those, well, we have more trans people today than we did 20 years ago, oh, so hey, obviously God. you're creating the transgenders. Nope, mm-hmm. nope, nope. They just feel like they can say it now. Thanks, though. Bye. Yeah, it's so fucking frustrating. Ah. It's funny how people can just completely skew factual information to suit their really shitty arguments, but here we are. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, let's do a parade, shall we? So we see that Lester is continuing to make racist jokes about the giant swan that he has made. I will say, I mean, I've been to a lot of parades, and you don't often see a float that looks this good, so... I feel like he got a a good deal out of it. Am I saying that? Well, he paid them in tacos, so of course he got a good deal. Jesus Christ. I love his defense of that joke, though, where he's just like, oh, they love that. (laughs) That's like the equivalent of I have a black friend. (laughs) This is a conversation that's going to be very, very pertinent after you watch tonight's episode of The Boys. There we go. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Becky complains that she doesn't want to get up on this one because she doesn't like the smell of gasoline. And Amber and Leslie make jokes about how they're choking on swan gas because, of course, they're in the car behind it as the runner's up. And then this is when Gladys lights the... I guess gasoline lake at the bottom. I don't know how she didn't figure that this thing wasn't going to go up. She lit sparklers and the sparklers caught the, because paper mache is just like tissue paper. Mm -hmm. So the sparkler caught it on fire. But she says she's going to light it and it's going to look like a shimmering lake of flame. And I was like, wait, do you have (laughs) like accelerant all around the base of it? It's it's, it's because I get an idea because the sparklers are in like the little flowers on the float. And so I, I assume she let them all around the float. So it's just, yeah, it looks like um, the sparkles look ah, like okay. the, sh- the, 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 the moon, the, the sunlight, like reflecting off the water. Needless to say, it's an <laughs> absolutely garbage, terrible idea that, yes, paper mache, uh, any of these kinds of products, absolutely flammable. So and it's also soaked in gasoline. Yes, there is that as well. And so this thing goes sky high. We have so many explosions in this movie. It's very funny. Okay, but like, I did not see this coming. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, my sister told me it was coming. But so, but uh, that aside, if I was watching this and didn't know that was going to come, like, this is, oh, it's so good. It's so good. We kill this character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I wish we actually got to see like a piece of her go up into the sky or something because it's it's a bit of a sad death for Denise Richards. Like she doesn't get to play it up. She's just gone. But we do get Gladys absolutely melting down, turning on everyone in the town. This, of course, is being documented. And this is also where we get the payoff for all of the cops references that are being made <laughs> when actual cops and their camera crews show up and we get the like, hey, man, how's it going? I also like during this scene, I, I, this is not intentional because found footage wasn't really a thing at this point. Well, not until look, the next week. Blair, Blair Witch, Witch like, wide. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but no, I, I love the, um, the, 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 the the camera of someone running like towards the, the float it's like all oh, crap all oh, crap all oh, crap it mm-hmm. like that is like oh there's a found footage shot in this movie <laughs> yep so all of that is a hubbub it is over we bury becky <laughs> iris doesn't even wait to grab that crown and make sure that Amber knows she is now mount rose's winner so we get the package that uh, accompanies their trip to state very exciting. We get to stay at the airport Hojul. Going to the airport! So then they arrive in the big city. Amber is overwhelmed by this competition. Like, the, the caliber of girls is just immediately much, much better, and she feels threatened. So I this is, I think, the part where people are like, ugh, this transition, it's yeah. awkward. It's not easy to navigate. The shining light in the back half of this 
film for me are the state pageant reps Colleen Douglas, played by Nora Dunn, and Terry Macy, played by Mo Gaffney. These women are basically American versions of Absolutely Fabulous. Oh, I can see that. Uh, I, Nora Dunn is a national treasure. I love her. Uh, yeah, I, it, it's, it's just because it, it feels like we're starting a different movie because we mm-hmm. only have Amber and Loretta here. Every other yes. character we know is jettisoned from this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm thankful that it doesn't, it seems to understand that it can't go on for too, too much longer. So like we learned that the show has been hit with budget cuts. So it's suddenly going to take place in one day. We're not going to stretch it out over two days. And then we barely even get into the rehearsal before people start to vomit because of the shellfish. P.S. I don't know if you recognize this girl, but the girl who's the first, uh, who's patient zero for the vomiting mm-hmm. is the girl who gets killed by the bus in Final Destination. <sighs> Yes. Amanda Detmer. <laughs> Brief but memorable appearances in our favorite movies, right? Also, I, I, I do eat shellfish, but I've met many people that don't. Is it because of this movie? No, and I'm a little bummed by that. But they do <laughs> but they, they do give me a variation of the phrase of the don't, don't eat anything that can, that can carry its house around with it because who knows the last time it's been cleaned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this was, that must be something people say. I feel like that's sage advice. I mean, Amelia, yeah. you live on the coast. Is that something where people are like, oh, no, I don't go near near seafood so i lived in a landlocked state for so long that like now that i live here i am like fish give me fish give me give me fish fair fair okay but shrimp are like shrimp and crawfish and all that shit like they're basically sea cockroaches and we (laughs) eat them constantly like we're obsessed with them and like i still eat them but also like it's gross (laughs) when you think about it it's hella nasty but i mean when you think about drinking milk it's also hella nasty. Oh, God. Don't get Trace dirt on the milk. I know. Fucking weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> strange, strange man. If you think about it, like, food in general, there's a lot of weird shit that we are yeah. more than happy to put into our mouths and bellies because it just tastes good. Yeah. But like, I love weird. cheese so much, but yes. the way, like, the way cheese is made is absolutely Nasty. fucking disgusting. Yeah. It is disgusting. You are curdling. Would y'all eat the maggot cheese? No. What? I just, like, I, I, but people eat it and I'm so curious, but I'm like, oh, I feel like I would throw up. Ugh. I wouldn't eat maggot cheese because I love cheese. And I feel like the second I eat maggot cheese, I will never eat <laughs> yeah. another piece of cheese ever again. <laughs> well, now I never have to spend money on cheese again because gross. Yeah. There you go. So I do love that this salmonella dysentery outbreak, which is labeled tragedy by this reporter. I love that it's captured in this sort of cinema verite news report because again we're foreshadowing the end of this movie we've had numerous references to diane sawyer but it's very much like hey hey this is what amber's gonna have to do at the end of the movie get ready how do y'all feel about amber the winning by default for all of these things (laughs) i mean i feel like that's part of the joke of this movie yeah i also don't know that she wins by default she just like yes she picks up the mic but that doesn't mean anything happens I mean, she yeah, outlasts that's the competition, right? She's kind of like yeah. a survivor contestant. No, I know. I mean, granted, she should have won the first pageant, not Becky anyway. Right. So because I, I do think that was rigged, too. Right. Because in the but I'm not going backwards. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yes, it was rigged to answer there, your question. There you go. Now we can go forward. <laughs> okay, so yes, Amber does end up winning. So now she's won Minnesota State, which means that they will get to advance to nationals. It's all very exciting. One of the funny recurring jokes is that Loretta is a bit of a happy slut, and she's constantly trying to convince men to sleep with her. <laughs> so during this whole outbreak, she has bedded the actually attractive bartender and actually attractive (laughs) well because we don't know what the camera crew looks like but it seems like loretta is uh not discerning like it seems like if there's fresh blood she will go after it but i love that we we actually see her come out with this guy and you can hear her be like do you think anybody heard us and we've just watched (laughs) like 30 seconds of these beauty queens blowing chunks over the side of this building <laughs> my other really good quote of, it's actually Nora dunn's line is whenever <laughs> they're like we haven't ruled out sabotage that bitch from wisconsin <laughs> mm-hmm. i also quote the uh marco polo <laughs> rebuttal where she's like if you don't stop it with the fucking marco polo i'm gonna come over there and rip your fat little heads off <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> yes so amber goes home and we see that annette is slowly learning how to use her new hook to open beer and then she gets celebrated amber gets celebrated by her hometown and then she travels to lincoln alabama for nationals and this is when we learn that sarah rose has been seized by the irs for tax evasion so after 50 years the company is basically done we see all of the girls riot and amber just gets back on the bus roll credits more or less yeah So I'm going to bring back Emily Colucci that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. So she does have a piece that's properly on Drop Dead Gorgeous called Jesus Loves Winners, satirizing the American scam in Drop Dead Gorgeous for Filthy Dreams. Mm. And she says, Drop Dead Gorgeous shows audiences quite correctly that even winners are trapped by the American dream scam, and the beauty competition is the American dream. It's no mistake that the Sarah Rose Cosmetics American Teen Princess Beauty Pageant, say that five times fast, started around World War II, after which the promise of the American dream would be added its height since then as seen in the film things have taken a slide and yet the girls still see winning the pageant as a way out of their shitty town with a paltry scholarship unlike the boys whose options to leave and succeed are hockey scholarships or prison so yeah um we do get these closing credits and we learn a little bit about some of the more memorable characters so one more hit below the belt for poor leslie she opens a beauty salon but uh she's also working as a dancer and then she gets sex trafficked into the philippines where she has never seen or heard from again (laughs) but if you see her call 1-800-X-QUEEN wow yeah (laughs) we learn that harold has died from lyme disease leaving hank the store (laughs) and has fallen into a bit of disrepair and then we close the film with gladys uh she comes in second in a prison beauty pageant then she escapes and initiates a standoff with the police where she is trying to kill amber a reporter is shot and amber takes her mic and ultimately becomes a news anchor so there was an alternate ending that i did not know about and is not on any blu-ray release of this film or any home video release but it's definitely shot because they tested this film with this ending okay is this one of the reasons why they were like nope can't do anything with this movie yeah so in the original ending kirstie alley's character actually killed herself in prison uh in the next scene you just see her feet swinging in the jail cell And it went from her feet swinging down to an ashtray with a still-lit cigarette. 
With Gladys dead, the shooting spree at the end of the film was still there, but it was the work of librarian Iona Hildebrandt, the Mount Rose winner from 1945 who had to give her uh, crown away. For scrap, yeah. Yeah. She snapped as a result of the bastardization of the pageant. Uh, The audience had a visceral reaction to this conclusion. Uh, Apparently when they showed it, um, yeah, there's other dark parts in the movie, but the whole theater went, ugh. When the movie ended. And so Mm -hmm. that was too much. That was one step over the line and they had to redo the ending. We want to see a villain get theirs and we want to see our heroine succeed by besting them, right? Like having that one to two scene character come back, I don't think it would have been satisfying. Mm. Um, I don't like this as an ending for the Gladys character because I don't buy that this woman would have done this. Right. Too proud, too headstrong to die by suicide in prison. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I mean, as much as I love the uh, Hildebrandt character in her little bit about, you know, uh, Ludafisk and and, and uh, giving away her crown, mm-hmm. that feels too out of left field to bring back into this movie. However, right. I will say that that this original ending does seem more in line with the, the narrative subversions this film takes. Right. Yeah. Because this, en- this ending is a little bit more traditional, right? Yeah. Well, then that is Drop Dead Gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, Amelia, as the guest of honor, what are your final thoughts on this film? Uh, I mean, it's a wonderful, shitty movie. It makes me smile. I will fight you on it. This is not a shitty movie. It this is, is a, a wonderful, shitty movie that makes me smile. <laughs> this needs to be like, like what, what is it when it's the AFI list where it's like it's uh, culturally or, or whatever significant. Yeah. Yeah, that, that it's that. <laughs> All right. Where's my criterion of this? <laughs> All right. I mean, I think that's a different Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> criterion should take itself less seriously. I do agree with that. But you know what? They've got pink flamingos coming out this month. So I think I think they're they're working their way there. Baby steps. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I I love this movie. Uh, I hate that I never saw. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't see it in theaters when it came out. But I did see it in theaters because the Draft House showed this a couple years ago, and I was very happy to get to see this with the crowd. Yeah, this is just, uh, I mean, this is one of those films that, along with Clue, previous episode and previous episode Scream 2, are in my top four in Letterboxd. It's a very special film to me. I fucking love it. It is endlessly hilarious, although I have learned that I have to be very selective about who I show it to. Yeah, I mean, I think as the first of five weeks of camp, we haven't spent a ton of time talking about it, but I think in part that's because we're going to use this as a bit of a jumping off point right like it's bad taste it's got a bit of a cult status it's a bit of an underdog vibe it's trashy and we're going to explore that in specific examples as the next four weeks unfurl but i think that this is like a good primer if you don't like this sense of humor if you don't like the garishness (laughs) if you don't like the ugliness yeah the next four weeks are going to be lots of fun for you yeah (laughs) yeah this is a good litmus test yeah. A litmus test <laughs> for a lot of the bad taste you will have coming up. So I was going to say amuse-bouche, but yes, yeah, litmus test. Yes, same thing. Joe, close us out, close us out. All right, so I'm bringing back Emily for one last quote. So this is to, to wrap up some of the political class conversations that we've had, but also because I think it's very succinct. So Drop Dead Gorgeous presents a battle that seems even more contemporary. So this is one of the things I like about this is that even though we've talked about how the film could not be made nowadays, it is a 23 year old movie, it does still feel very relevant for our times. So it's a corporation hawking a false sense of success that is actually shirking its financial responsibilities, screwing over those who climb their way to try to get there. 
This is the scam of Trump and of countless other major American companies screwing over everyone else in the country, the ones that promise a dream and a fantasy while grifting as much and as hard as they can, and maybe someday, like Amber, we'll all recognize that scam too. Or we can do like Loretta and Annette and just laugh. This movie's deep. That is an A-plus quote. <laughs> yeah, and that is a perfect way to close out this conversation. So before we announce what we are covering next week to continue camp, uh, Amelia, uh, let everyone know, where can they find you on social media? Uh, you can find me all across social, all of them, I think. Mm-hmm. I think. Whatever. <laughs> uh, that Witch Mia, across social. Even if I'm not on there, I saved the name. There we go. Yeah, but yeah. I'm most active on Twitter. Right. Yes. And, and and go to IGN and read it. You read some. I mean, I know you are like an editor, but you also do write reviews for that site. I do. I also write a lot of features. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers or shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd. Keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot button issues with some of our journalistic peers. And if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our HorrorQueers Facebook group and go talk to them. Uh, and us. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are almost done with June, so if you go subscribe today, you'll get all this and more. Uh, episodes on our favorite horror movie posters, the new Micah Monroe thriller Watcher, Jurassic World Dominion, The Black Phone, and an audio commentary on Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Mm-hmm. So, Joe, we've been teasing these next four weeks of camp for a while. Um, What is installment number two next week? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, Let's just say that we're not done with bad accents just yet, (laughs) Trace. But we're definitely going into lurid, sort of erotic thriller territory. A little bit more contemporary. But yes, we're going to check out Has de la Huerta's Nurse. 3D. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, this will be a first time watch for you, but mm-hmm. a sixth time watch for me. Oh so um, I am very, very excited to discuss Nurse 3D. It is um, a movie, mm-hmm. in quotes. Um, I don't know if you could call it a movie. <laughs> yeah. And, and folks, I'll give a gentle content warning. There is a sexual assault of a kind. It's not egregious. And the film doesn't acknowledge it. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll have things to say about it. But yeah, enjoy that shit show. Yeah. <laughs> enjoy positive words as quote unquote acting. But until then, we can cross out Drop Dead Gorgeous. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. Thank you.